welcome to another episode of 42 to Doomsday. Tonight, we will be talking with Paul Schoons, uh, who created the highly regarded New Zealand fanzine TSV, about the creation of TSV uh, and fanzines in general. And we'll also be speaking with Paul about his uh, role in helping define the crusade and also his work uh, springing off his uh, involvement with fanzines on uh, such books as The Comic Strip Companion. Hello, Paul. Hello. Welcome to the uh, podcast. Great to be here. This is the podcasting equivalent of the uh, band Crowded House, where two untalented Australians ride on the coattails of a uh, talented New Zealander. Oh, <laughs> but didn't the Australians claim Crowded House as their own? Yeah, so we also claimed, uh, what's the other one? Lord? Split Ends? Yeah, Lord lives just down the road from me. Tell us, said hello. <laughs> maybe we can get all her Twitter followers. Mark. Yeah, maybe. We could, maybe. yeah. So, uh, Paul, as we do with all our guests, we, uh, we get their uh, Doctor Who fan credentials out there uh, at the very beginning, their bona fides. Uh, when when did uh, when did you first encounter Doctor Who? March 1975. Uh, very first episode of John Pertwee's uh, era, Spear from Space episode one, when it screened in New Zealand. So I would have been six or seven years old at that point, and I just, just caught it because my mother recommended watching it. She had watched it growing up as a teenager in the UK. We um, immigrated to New Zealand when I was five years old. And I don't have any memories of watching it in England, although I guess I might have done as a baby. And so, yeah, John Pertwee, because we were five years behind in, in New Zealand at that point. So technically, Tom Baker was, was on screen in the UK, but um, we were five years behind. So spear from space. So my earliest memory is um, actually probably the one that I can most distinctly remember is when he's rolling down the hill in the wheelchair. No, um, being yeah, when when they're trying to abduct him in the ambulance, that's that's my first very firm memory of Doctor Who. And then I got really sort of very scattered, disjointed memories throughout the Pertwee stuff because we only got about ten of the Pertwee stories here to, the first time round. Wasn't till the eighties they screened the whole lot in order. So um, yeah, I've got really no no memories of the Master because we didn't get any of the Delgado stories. They missed all of those for some strange reason. And, uh, and then from about Tom Baker onwards, which we got by 1978, I think, um, I was pretty much a devoted viewer from that point onwards. And by 1980, I was, as every every fan of that era does, I was I was avidly collecting the Target books and reading those repeatedly and ordering them on my shelf and everything and, and just really sort of obsessed from that point onwards. So those are my credentials. <laughs> They're very good credentials. Mark shamefully uh, lists or links his uh, involvement in, you know, really into the show with watching Ark of Infinity. Right. Um, can, can... <laughs> well, yeah, that's one way of getting into Doctor Who. You've got to start somewhere. You've got yeah, to start yeah. somewhere. It's the only way's up from there. <laughs> can you uh, pinpoint when you went from being a viewer to being a fan of the show? where it became sort of compulsive viewing? I think, and, you know, mem memory cheats a little bit, but I, I, I think it's round about the point of Leisure Hive. And, and it, it made such a big impression on me because we didn't have that season break between Horns of Nymon and Leisure Hive here in New Zealand. It basically went from one week to the next. And so I didn't have any advance awareness of what was coming up in the show. I wasn't getting Doctor Who magazine or anything at this point. So, so it was kind of just like, suddenly to see this really much more revamped and very modern looking um high it looked very high tech to me as a as a kid uh, i it really made a huge impression on me and i'm going oh this is this is really it made me say to sit up and take notice i was already a regular viewer you know but i think that's the point where i went oh this is something i'm really going to take a lot more notice of back in the 80s then how prevalent was um say doctor who magazine or, or the novelizations is it was it uh you could walk into your local news agency or bookshop and they would they would be there would that be right 
I discovered Doctor Who magazine when my grandmother in the UK started sending it to me. I had never seen it in the bookshops in New Zealand. I wasn't really even aware it existed. The novelizations and the, the program guide and things like that and the Peter Haining books were, were my, my sort of go-tos, if you like. And it was um, 1984 when I discovered Doctor Who. The first issue I got was the one with Peter Cushing on the cover. Ah, yes. Um, issue, issue 84 from, from January of that year. And then I started noticing it in the bookshops. But New Zealand, like everything else, was, was a bit far behind. So I actually managed to pick up some back issues. So it was from issue 81 onwards, I had a complete run. So And then uh, and in subsequent years, I've, I've managed to pick up all the others. So, yeah. It's funny, st- the news agencies here are still a few months behind the UK. You can walk into any news agency here and, <laughs> and look at the genre magazines and go, I can pay yeah. double for the ones that have been air freighted in, or I can wait. I can pay less for the ones that are a couple of months old. But Yeah, I suspect we share the same magazine distributors in New Zealand as you get in Australia. Not Gordon and Gotch by any chance. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, possibly. <laughs> I used to work at a news agency and I, took, uh, I had one trip to take some magazines back to the distributors up here in, in the northern part of Melbourne. So I did actually get to see them, but uh, yeah, anyway. So um, at that time, um, Paul, what sort of, uh, what was fandom like? What was organised fandom like in New Zealand? Was there a fan club as such or fan clubs? Well, if you're talking about the time when I became a fan, no, there wasn't. I I didn't really know anyone else who was a, a Doctor Who fan. Yeah, I, I had friends who watched the series and we talked about the series and everything, but no one who was a fan as such, no one who was obsessive about it like I was. So I felt very isolated. I felt very much like I, I was like the only New Zealand fan. And I mean, I found out obviously subsequently there were other fans who had similar experiences to myself who felt like they were the only fan in New Zealand too. But no, there wasn't any organised fandom whatsoever. There were there were general science fiction clubs, but they didn't seem to have a a large focus on Doctor Who. So, so yeah, I was kind of like, you know, and I was only a teenager too. I didn't sort of have much sort of way of getting around and meeting sort of many too many people. I was still at school when I was was you know into Doctor Who in a big way. It wasn't until I went to university that I started to meet other Doctor Who fans, which would have been 1987. Does that coincide with uh, TSV being born, more or less? It does indeed. It does indeed. Yeah. That was basically the, the genesis. The genesis. No, my first year at university was, was, was the pivotal moment. That's when TSV was born. Okay, and was it just the, the fact that you were, you were mingling with a, a, a larger group of fellow Doctor Who fans that sort of inspired you to, to, to go down that path? Is that right? No, I just assumed, and I think I've been like reading things like the Peter Haining book where it talked about sort of universities having Doctor Who clubs you know, in the UK, that, um, that New Zealand would have one too. And so, like, when I went to Auckland University, I was, I, I, I suppose very naively, I assumed that I'd automatically just find a club that had Doctor Who fans in it. <laughs> and it kind of annoyed me that, because there was a science fiction club, and I went along to one of their meetings, you know, I was just starting out at university, and I was just sort of like, you know, fresh-eyed, bright young thing who hadn't, like, sort of worn down my academic life. And, and they were kind of a bit snobbish and a bit sort of reservist and so didn't really want to sort of talk about Doctor Who and it was a bit beneath them and everything. So I remember going away from that meeting being quite dejected and going, well, that was completely disappointing. And so what I did on a, on a, on a spur of the moment thing was I put a notice up on the campus um, so club's notice board saying anyone interested in Doctor Who, you know, interested in sort of, you know, getting together to discuss Doctor Who, contact me. And it was around about the time that two things had happened. One, Sylvester McCoy had been cast as the Doctor, so it was kind of like felt like it was a new beginning for the series. And the second thing was that Patrick Troughton had just died. And I kind of felt, I really want to talk to someone about this, these things. You know, I really want someone to, to share in these, the, the, these things that, that seemed very important to me at the time. 
So I had one reply from a, from a guy also called Paul, confusingly enough, um, Paul Sinkovich, who was also a, f- a fellow first year student. And he, he had, I should say, I should say that we were way behind on New Zealand television at this point, because what had happened is they'd taken off Doctor Who years earlier, midway through the Davison era. We got as far as Mordred Undead, and then they stopped screening it. Then after a year, they started, they went right back to the end of Patrick Troughton's era, and they started running through the episodes from there every week. And so by this point, when I'm in 1987, they're only up to the early Baker stuff, early Tom Baker. So, you know, Doctor Who has continued on in the UK, and I'm reading Doctor Who magazine. There's all these episodes from, from Terminus onwards, and I haven't seen any of them. So I'm way, way behind. I'm, I'm reading the comic strip with Colin Baker in it, and I've no idea what he's like. I've never seen a single one of his episodes. So it's really quite, quite you know, I, I feel quite sort of backward and behind with it. And, and then to meet... Paul Sinkovich, who had off-air recordings of every single episode that I'd missed. Can you imagine that? <laughs> it's like, and he just said, oh, do you want to borrow these? I was going, oh my god. So I just, you can imagine I just binged for days and days and days catching up. Where did he get them from? Australia? Uh, he just swapped them because the thing was we were, because we were seeing all the old stories, all the Pertwees and the Bakers, in UK they weren't getting repeats. So he had UK pen pals who were desperate to get our, our off-air recordings of, of the old stories. Sounds familiar. This is pre-VHS. You know, this is pre, pre you know, the commercial releases. Mm. They, hadn't, they hadn't released these stories on VHS at that point. It's only 87. And so, so the UK pen pals were going, yeah, 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 please send us all these old recordings. We'll quite happily send you the new stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. It was easy enough to, to do tape trades back in those days. The good old days. Pre-internet, yep. Yeah. yeah. All just uh, 180 minute tapes with, with seven episodes each sent through the post. Yeah. We'll send you some Pertwees if you send us uh, Paradise Towers. Good swap. Well, exactly. That, I mean, you joke about it, but that was what was happening. <laughs> and, we, and, we were, and we were grateful for it, you know. Oh, we can go that far, but anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, a lot of fanzines, and I, like Rob and I were involved in fanzines, and, and they usually were aligned to a Doctor Who club, but for TSV, it was the other way around. Yeah, you're quite right. The fanzine came first and the club came second. That's right. So how did you get the name out there and, and how did it survive and, and thrive? Oh, it, was quite, it started quite small, as, as, as fanzines probably do. Um, Paul had a number of pen pals um, and he'd, I don't quite know how he got them. Probably he was a member of the Australian Doctor Who oh, fan club, you know, the, the Australasian as it was then because yeah. it was supposedly covered New Zealand as well. And they had a pen pal column. They did. And so whenever anyone New Zealand popped up in the pen pal column, he'd write off to them and start a, start you know corresponding with them mm. and so by the time i met paul he'd been a fan for a number of years just like i had but he'd built up this list of people who were fans around new zealand which i didn't have i didn't know any other fans around new zealand so we're not when we were like batting back and forth the idea of what would we like to do and we decided to do a fanzine we had a ready-made mailing list because these are people who really wanted to be united sort of you know we're talking people the length of the country not people who could meet up for a video day because they most of them weren't in Auckland mm. so a way of keeping of uniting them and talking to everyone was to was produce a newsletter or a fanzine that we, we could distribute so the point of having a club didn't really appeal to me because when we, we, my idea at the time of what a club was and this is probably colored by my experiences at university was a club was a group of people who met up yes and because we weren't we couldn't meet up because we were too spread out it didn't never occurred to me to create a club 
Hmm. I don't know quite why that is, because obviously I'd seen the Australian fan club magazine, and that obviously served the whole of Australia, if not the whole of Australasia. So it was like kind of, it was an obvious thing to do, really. I just didn't, maybe it was, and I, you know, memory might cheat here, but maybe it was because they already had the Australasian club, I felt like we were already being catered for in terms of a club. I don't know. But yeah, certainly didn't, it didn't occur to me. Now, you've mentioned uh, the Australasian club and, and its uh, fanzine, uh, Paul. Had you been reading any other... Uh, fan fan scenes before that? No, prior to meeting Paul and seeing his his large collection of fans, he was he was also a subscriber to Celestial Toy Room, which was the um, British Doctor Appreciation Society fanzine. My only real um, experience of Doctor um, was was the, the the magazine, obviously, other than the books. So was, the, the official Marvel magazine was my only publication that I was getting every month, and so fanzines were something that were very new to me when when uh, when when Paul came along and he lent me his his big stack of fanzines, and I read those through voraciously and going, yeah, yeah, we should be doing this you know it, it seemed obvious to me that this was the thing to do were there any particular fanzines that you took inspiration from or do you think that fanzines as a rule generally speaking have uh, have the same sort of formatting you know an, an editorial maybe an interview maybe a story maybe some fan articles i think probably celestial toy room was always a big influence it seemed very sort of up to date and 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 very much relevant to to Doctor Who. It, it was it seemed to me a lot more current and a lot more newsworthy than perhaps even the Marvel magazine was. Probably look at, if I look back at them now, they're they're not nearly as good as I thought they were. I don't know. I haven't got those issues to hand. But the Australian one, Data Extract, I think it was called. Yes. Um, th- that was more newslettery, wasn't it? Yeah. It wasn't so much a sort of fanzine as a newsletter and. And 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 I did emulate that a bit later on when when TSV got a bit arduous to do as an A four A five you know booklet. I I I changed to doing it like data extract, where it's like three sheets stapled together for a few issues because it just seemed a lot easier to produce that when time was limited. So I was influenced by data extract, but not initially. I would say we were quite spoiled for choice over in Australia because we had data extract, uh, and that was out of Sydney, and we mm-hmm. had uh, Sonic Screwdriver. It was the Doctor Who Club of Victoria's publication. I think Perth had one as well. They had a club there called the West Lodge. There was one in Adelaide as well, I think. I don't know about Queensland, though. Can I ask, did you feel that um, that the Australian, the Australasian fan club and Data Extract served you well as, a, as, a, as unifying all the clubs together? No. Did that work? Not really. Was it just very Sydney-centric? Is that what you're saying? It was very Sydney-centric. I mean, do remember that we did try to get some sort of links, more, more links happening uh, between the clubs, especially from Victoria and New South Wales, the view was they do their thing and we do ours. Mm. It wasn't helped by the traditional antipathy between Sydney and Melbourne, just generally mm. speaking. Um, my my memory is that there was a, a click or a clack, a click in in Sydney, uh, and then there was you know us in, in Victoria. And I, I suppose, I mean, looking back on it, those sort of divisions are are silly in hindsight, but they were definitely there. Uh, I suppose Sydney, the people in Sydney aren't going to like this necessarily, but there, there were a number of uh, big name fans in Sydney who had been uh, involved in Doctor Who fandom for some time. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they had Kate Orman, who was also uh, in Sydney, uh, gave them a certain amount of cachet. Uh, and that's not a slight on, on, on Kate and, and later her husband, John. Uh, it's just the way of the world, I suppose. Because she edited Doctor um, Data Extract for a while, didn't she? In the early 90s, I think. 
I think she did. I know she was writing uh, articles for Sonic Screwdriver in Victoria as well. She was, she was quite a prolific fanzine contributor before she got into Virgin Books. Yes, yeah, she was. I've often said this, she's one of Australia's great unsung genre writers. I think she's great, personally. I, I've never actually met Kate, but I've spoken to her on the phone and we've corresponded quite a bit in the, over the years. She contributed to TSV. She was very, very supportive of TSV. I was just going to say, I, was, uh, she, I think she had a... A side fanzine. Dark Circus. I've got those. Oh, very good. I remember contributing uh, a story oh, yeah. and a non-fiction piece to that. And I, I remember Kate uh, uh, wrote a letter back because, of course, no one had an email back then. And she <laughs> actually complimented me on the story. And I, I felt that, that special thrill that you get when someone who you don't know has just complimented your work that you've slaved over for X yeah. number of days. So uh, she was, I, th- I thought she was always very generous with her, with her time and her thoughts. She'd just send me articles and and stories for TSV even without me asking, and I'm going, you know, this is someone who's, you know, by this point she was already on the sort of the the, the fan radar because she would, I think, um, about the time Left Hand Hummingbird came out, so everyone knew her name, and the fact that she still contributed to TSV in New Zealand, it was like, wow, that's really that's really nice of you, that's really generous of your time. Uh, apart from building an audience, yeah, I mean, the perennial problem with fanzines is getting contributors. How did you go about? Um, you know, getting contributors and building up a stable of reliable writers for you. Because I noticed that looking at uh, some of the earlier issues, as you mentioned in the editorial for issue one, that you wrote most of the articles. Did you, <laughs> did you find it a struggle to get writers? Yeah, initially, yeah, definitely. But that's probably the same with every fanzine. I'm sure you look at most fanzines, and the first couple of issues are probably written by the editors. Uh, because you 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 kind of you you've got to sort of set out what you're about in order to get people to to contribute. You know, it's sort of like cart before the horse type thing. Um, so yeah, definitely those those first issues were very much written by me. I mean, Paul Sinkovich wrote a few articles, but to be honest, his <laughs> I, I sometimes feel like I can I, I killed off um, Paul Sinkovich's enthusiasm for, for for Doctor Who because I came on, I was so like I want to do this, we really want to do this. I was so enthusiastic, I think he just sort of took a step back and looked at me and went, "This guy's a bit too much." <laughs> so so yeah, <laughs> because you you look at there's only probably about four articles in the whole of those first six issues that I did that actually had Paul contributing to them and I think maybe one or two other people wrote some stuff and <laughs> other than that it's just me 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 and that's not egotistical it's just I was the one who had all the enthusiasm and the boundless sort of like wanting this thing to work but yeah in terms coming back to your question I, it just built up a reputation over time I think People started out hearing about us, and it's just pre-internet, so it's hard to imagine how they found out. We had a few plugs in Doctor Who magazine over the years, so that would have gained us some some subscribers. And 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 people just word of mouth, and uh, people were saying, "Oh, you should get this," you know, people who knew other fans. And so the the, the the subscriber database built up and up. I think for a while we were just like the Australian Club when the VHSs were coming out. We were actually listed on the back as well with our address, so people could write if they were getting the VHS tapes, they could write in and and, and subscribe that way. So people started out subscribing to the magazine, seeing what it was like, and going, "Oh, I want to draw something, or I want to write something." So the the enthusiasm came out of seeing what we were doing. I think for a lot of people, you you're talking about big name contributors, probably. I mean, Andrew Cartmill, we interviewed him. That was a really big big coup. Getting, getting, I mean, he hadn't been interviewed by anyone about Doctor Who at that point, so that was a that was a big win for us. Um, in terms of actual people writing for us, obviously Andrew Pixley's a big name. Andrew phoned me up out of the blue one night, very late at night, and 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 complimented me on he'd borrowed some issues off a friend, I think, 
and he said, "Oh, these are so good. These are so good. I want to. I, I, I you know, I'm really, really impressed. I, I want you to, you know, I want to subscribe to this, and I, and I want to write for you." And that was just really brilliant. So he just phoned me up just one night. It's like <laughs> it was just like, "Oh, thank you. I know exactly who you are, and you, <laughs> you know, I've, I've admired your work and everything." So that that was a re really big buzz. And and yeah, and you can put, spot the point in, in TSV's history that probably about '97, maybe '96, when when Andrew starts writing for us, and there's just a sort of explosion of really detailed articles from him there's a really great article that andrew wrote for us called what's in a name where he analyzes in huge detail what the hartnell story should be called and it's been a really influential article that, that people have referenced to this day so yeah very proud of that i can turn my head and uh, see the, the the book on callum that he wrote uh, that was released recently and mm. uh, i mean you know i've never spoken to the man myself but uh, his internet presence uh, he's, he appears to be well he is obviously a, a very genuine and uh, uh, and giving sort of individual and, and quite happy to uh, i think he's, he's a, a very positive note in fandom you can you can speak with people on, on the forums and, and you know be overwhelmed by the gripes and all that sort of thing but uh, Andrew's contribution has over overwhelmingly been positive. I would say that Andrew seems to, to my perspective, he seems to stand apart from all the politics of fandom. It seems to sort of pass him by. And he, uh, Andrew's very sort of purist. He's interested in knowing the facts about the series. And anything to do with fan politics or, you know, fan creativity or anything, it's just completely passes him by he it's 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 all about the paperwork it's all about the documentation it's all about getting the right information the most accurate retelling of the, of the story of how how doctor who was made and he's just so purist and and so focused on that and it's really quite inspirational his book on the goodies super chap three is uh fantastic as well so detailed absolutely so it's detailed. a slab isn't it it's just huge. it is it is it fell on me once and i was hospitalized for a week so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, it's, it, it, you can always rely on Andrew's work to be, you know, uh, just just thorough, fo almost faultlessly created and uh, and uh, and compiled. And uh, there's a genuine love for all of his subjects. I think that comes right through. There's a challenge that myself and the other people who worked on the production notes for the DVDs had was like beat the pixley. It was like try and find <laughs> something that a Andrew missed or b Andrew got wrong. And I tell you, it was a challenge. <laughs> because that just tells you how much of the he actually covered, you know. And we'll touch on your DVD work later, in, uh, sure. uh, Paul. But I just want to go go back in in the pre-internet era and I suppose pre-word processors and pre-computers. Putting together a fanzine was was almost a, a physical. It was like you know uh, doing a bit of woodwork. You know, you're working with physical products, cut and paste, and and uh, and paper and all that sort of thing. What was it like the production process to get an issue of TSV together? Well, the very earliest issues were produced on a manual typewriter, um, and then sort of just sort of cut up into bits and stuck down with um, glue stick. And and then later on, I used it from a manual typewriter to an electric typewriter. It had a golf ball with different. You know, you can take one golf ball down for another one if you want italics. Or <laughs> it seems laughably laborious. Now, every time I got to a story title, I had to change the golf ball so I could type it in italics, <laughs> and then change it back to normal font. It's just ridiculous to think of that now. <laughs> it's almost like they're being handcrafted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would type them up in columns um, later on too. So, like every every page, and I do it. TSV was an A5 fanzine, but I would do the pages at double size, so they'd be A. A4 size, and so they get shrunk down when they're photocopied. So it meant that they would look, look a bit more sort of um, a bit more detail on the page, and because full size typewriter does look a bit bit clunky, doesn't it? And so so by shrinking it down by half, it, it does look a bit more bit more professional. So so that was what I was doing, and I was just basically just typing up columns and columns of, of, of neatly measured you know 
typewritten text and then just cutting it up and pasting it into spaces and having photocopied pictures and illustrations and just arranging those on the page and sticking them down. I mean, that's how Doctor Who magazine was done back in the day when, you know, back in the weekly days, they would just cut and paste it all and stick it down. It's, it's the way that magazine work used to be done before desktop publishing came along. So I didn't know that's how other people did it. I just sort of thought, oh, this is how I've got to do it because I can't think of any other way of doing it. Mark and I have a friend who uh, used to put, put together a sonic screwdriver. And thanks to the unknowing largesse of the uh, the bank that he used to work for, he would photocopy uh, the, <laughs> the fanzine right. work going through boxes and boxes of paper. We no longer work for the bank, so that's fine. Right. But, um, how, how did uh, the, the reason I brought that up was how did you uh, how did you fund TSV? Was it largely out of your own pocket? Did uh, you know student loans pay? <laughs> no. Student loan? Uh, no. <laughs> I suppose initially I would have paid for it out of my own pocket, but we, I do remember in the early days I was just photocopying them on campus. The, we we found the, the weird thing was about about, about uh, the university campus was there was one faculty that didn't have photocopiers that were locked down, and what I mean by that is you could actually take the paper out and put it back in, so you could do double sided copying, mm. whereas every other every other photocopier you could only do single sided, and so for a fanzine you want to be able to do double sided, obviously. So so we we. I used to go to this this one faculty in my lunch hour and just feed in the coins into the coin slot and, and, and photocopy them that way. But I would do them to order. So if I got an order in the post for a fanzine, I'd go and run off a copy. So I wasn't it wasn't any great expenditure on my part. You know, I'd have a few in reserve maybe, but but generally if I got an order for twenty copies, say, then there'd be twenty copies produced. So I wasn't sort of sitting on this big stockpile of unsold copies in the early days. But that's that's right, that's right back at eighty seven, eighty eight. You know when I, when it was very manageable because I'd only sell what thirty, forty copies of a fa- of an issue, so it was manageable. What about ninety seven when uh, things were in full flight? At its height, TSV probably sold about two hundred and fifty copies worldwide. Collation days uh, was that you by yourself or was it more of a social event? It was definitely a social yeah. event. Yeah, we would have it. We'd have it quite a team. Early on, uh, the for some reason the the the, the photocopy place we used because obviously by this point I wasn't going to st- be on campus and do that. I wasn't at university anymore anyway. But we, we yeah we got a professional photocopy place to do it. But for some reason they couldn't handle the stapling. Their machine wouldn't staple the issues. They were too thick for them or something. So we were doing like. 100 page issues and 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 this means like sort of it was just too thick for some reason they, they they couldn't staple them for us so we had to hand staple every single issue so there was a sort of big collation they came collated in the sense that you know the the pages were in the right order but you had to pick off a single copy and 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 just clunk you know put a manual staple a couple of staples for it and then fold it over and then stick it in the envelope so that was the that was the extent of the collation parties that we had later on we changed printers and the printer could do could do all the the um stapling and folding for us so all we had to do was the envelope stuffing so that made life a lot easier you had luxury compared to what we had to do well, what'd you have to do basically because we were using uh, nefarious means to print these things off so <laughs> we were running running these things off at lunchtime or, or whatever and basically going to a, a university start collating so we'd have all the pages all put into order and then you walk mm. around the room picking all the papers up fold it in half manually staple it yep. and just do the merry-go-round till you basically do i don't know 100 and 200 uh, copies of these things and then to recover you go to the pub afterwards 
Well, I did that bit. Yeah, it's all like a, it's like oh, we've got to do collation day again. Off we go. But by the end of it, you's actually you got through it because you're all there together. You're talking rubbish. Did you not think because you had two hundred copies that it might be worth getting it done professionally? That's to say, the finances are just like Greece's uh, yeah. at the time, a little bit tight. I obviously, weren't charging enough for it. <laughs> I think we're too busy spending the money on other things like uh, merchandise. I was going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> going to the pub. <laughs> obviously, when the show went off air in '89. Did you did you suffer a drop off in uh, interest in the fanzine or, or contributors? There's a period where with TSV, where, I mean, we mentioned before about we probably need to backtrack a little bit because we'd mentioned how the fanzine came first and then the club. I didn't start the New Zealand Doctor Who fan club. It was started by a different outfit in Christchurch, and when they started, they were completely unaware that there was us doing the fanzine in Auckland. So it was a little bit of time in the early 1988 where we were running in parallel with no awareness of each other, and then they got wind of us and. Sent us a letter and went, oh, oh, we didn't realise you guys existed. You know, would you like to sort of collaborate on everything? And it coincided at a time where I was just getting so bogged down my university studies, and I just wanted to kind of like knock TSV on the head. But at the same time, it was getting too popular with its readership for me to. So I just kind of felt guilty about letting it go. Mm. So the fact I'd found that there was actually a club and they were going to do their own fanzine, I thought, yeah, this is the perfect confluence. Why don't I give you TSV? You know, talking to the Christchurch Club, I'll still be a writer for you. You know, I'll still contribute to it but you guys take over my, my membership list and keep it going. And, 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 and so they embraced that idea. They picked up TSE of issue seven because I'd done the first six issues. And they ran it through for two and a half years, through to the end of 1990. And then they ran a convention that had John Pertwee as a guest at it and called WhoCon. had John Pertwee and um, Mark Strickson and Dallas Jones was a fan guest from Australia. And I, I went along to it too as a speaker. And they, I don't know quite the ins and outs of it, but they ended up making a huge financial loss and the club fell apart over it. Basically, they, they, they just couldn't recoup their costs. They had to pay the, the hotel bill out of their own money. They had to use all the subscriber funds to, to, to just cover the basics, I guess. And it, it just basically blew them apart. You know, they just big falling out and, and it all just all got very ugly. I was on the outside of that because I was in Auckland, obviously. I went to the convention, but wasn't involved in the running of it. And I just got, I, I heard from them um, just, you know, at TSV, we don't know what to do with it. Someone else needs to take it over. We're, we're, we're completely like, you know, financially, not I'm going to say bankrupt, but they'd run out of funds. They had no funds left to do any more with TSV. They couldn't. They had a whole lot of subscribers who paid subscriptions, but they had no money left after this convention to actually manage those subscriptions. So I said, look, basically, I'll. I don't want to see TSV die. I felt like it was still my baby, so I said I'll take it back over at the beginning of '91. And um, I did a couple of fundraising days um, to raise money just to get the the ball rolling again to because obviously there was all subscriber base who were waiting on their issues they'd paid for and we got tsv up and running again but by this time coming back to your original question in a very roundabout way um the the series had disappeared because this is 91 where we're kind of on the crux of the new adventures starting the series has been off here for for a good year by this point and it really seems like it's not coming back so my aim with TSV was to celebrate the past of the series but also look at what was happening going forward and that was obviously throughout the 90s the new adventures was a big big focus of, of what, what what was going on and, and, and new you know new stuff so so it was a sort of a dual focus through the for the 90s for me with TSV I found it I like the challenge of it to be honest of not having a new series. I, I, I thought it, it made things more creative. 
it stimulated me that you had to you well, you couldn't just fall back on new news all the time. You had to be a bit more a bit more savvy about what you what you featured in each issue. Yeah. So yeah, I, I didn't I didn't I didn't feel crippled by it at all. In a sense, the uh, the, the, the the demise of the show at that point. Uh, enabled a great flowering of fandom in terms of its creativity. I definitely think the 90s were, were, were a big time for fandom. There was an explosion of small um, Doctor Who fanzines in New Zealand and I think in Australia as well because I got to see a lot of those too. Just simply by the fact that people were looking for an outlet for the, for their interest in the series given that there wasn't any new new episodes being made. So it was just people talk about the wilderness years. I think the the early wilderness years, the pre, it splits in half. I think the pre McGann movie. So you know, from the end of Survival through to McGann is that first wilderness years period. I think that that was a real explosion of fan creativity. There was a lot of fanzines around. There was a lot of clubs, a lot of people just trying different things and 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 doing some really interesting stuff and a lot of a lot of fiction being produced and it was really quite creative. I I really enjoyed that time. Post the McGann movie you felt the slow die-off, I don't know if you guys felt it, of fandom. The internet was around, obviously, post-McGann. Mm. McGann movies kind of like when, when, when a lot of people tended to get, you know, a lot of people got online at around that point, and uh, so people's interests were redirected online away from fanzines, maybe. It was a very slow thing. It wasn't like overnight, but but certainly by, by sort of the early 2000s, I, I think fan fan clubs and fanzines were, 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 were on, definitely on the wane. I don't know how you guys felt over there, but certainly it felt like that. I know when I was editing Sonic in the early 90s, uh, we you know we had the, the VHSs were coming out, so we did a review of those, sure. and luckily Term of the Sidemen was was found in Hong Kong, so mm. we were able to do a, a bit of a spread on that. And I've just had little bits and pieces to keep us going, and we did, yeah. we did like a bit of fan fiction and that. But uh, you're right, Cynism again, film failed uh, in the early two thousands, especially. I I was not interested at all. There was no fandom. Right. I mean, the club here was still going. Sonic Screwdriver was still going, but to be honest, I wasn't a member. Uh, I I don't know what they were doing at that time. Right, yeah, Rob. Did you notice anything? As Paul said before about the rise of the internet, I was—I'd uh, managed to retain my university access to the internet, even though I'd left university two years before that. So, I was following the progress and demise of uh, of the TV movie on the internet. And I mean, after that point, I actually got into writing for Sonic in a big way. I was just thinking about it before. I think I wrote an article or had a story in about you know twenty consecutive issues from about the mid seventies up to a hundred. So in terms of my interest in writing for a fanzine, it, I think it flowered after after the TV movie, but I have to go back and look at those, those issues. Um, but, but certainly I, I, I had a great interest in, in, in writing for Sonic and uh, maybe the TV movie helped spur that on. I know certainly the new adventures um, helped help, uh, help spur that on for me. I'd always been interested in, in, in writing fiction and the possibility... I think the Virgin books were the only genre publication out there at the time that openly encouraged you know just uh, general submissions from from anyone basically mm. you didn't have to have an agent uh you didn't have to sort of send in uh, well i mean you had to send in a sample obviously but they had their guidelines which i obtained and got mailed to me which you could just you could just contribute so the idea that as a fan you could contribute to a con- an official continuation of the series sort of gripped me a little bit um yeah it was an interesting time i know for me with tsv that we very i very much embrace the new adventures novels as as I would new television stories, I already much treated them with that same level of respect in, in TSV in the early 90s. And when TSV got reviewed by Doctor Who magazine, they really applauded that aspect of it. They said that a lot of new, a lot of UK fanzines were very quite sort of snooty of, of the new adventures, possibly because there was that over-familiarity. A lot of 
people who were writing the new adventures were in the in these these cliques of UK fandom themselves had come up through the fanzines. So maybe they're a bit sort of openly dismissive. I don't know, being on the outside of it. But certainly we were much more positive and embracing of the new adventures in TSV than Doctor Who magazine was seeing in these UK fanzines they were reviewing. And so they were saying, hey, look at New Zealand, they're doing really great work with this. So I think we got a lot of subscribers that way. And it never occurred to me not to be positive about the books. Well, one of your writers, David Bishop, uh, went on to write a, a, a book, uh, Who Killed Kennedy? Indeed. And then a number of the BBC novels as well. Yes. Yeah. He's a, they were very good books, especially Who Killed Kennedy, which I oh, think um, it's a great book. Yeah. It was a very different approach um, to the, the not the not the run of the mill books, but I mean certainly David and I were, were great mates before that. Um, David was living in the UK by the time he wrote that book, but he actually grew up in New Zealand, and uh, we hung out at a couple of conventions together. Yeah, he was he's a great guy. I still keep in contact with him, and he wrote a um, he wrote for TSV. And he even did a novelization of the Pirate Planet for us very early on as well, which we published. Well, I was going to touch on that because you um, you co-wrote or wrote a number of novelizations of stories that have never, well, up till now anyway. I mean, Shadow has obviously <laughs> yeah, been they're, novelized. They're, but they're all being overwritten now, aren't they? Mm. <laughs> what, was, what inspired that? I mean, I, I, I think I know what inspired it, but what inspired it? We did five of them. We did the, 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 the three Douglas Adams ones, you know, Pirate Planet, City of Death, and Sharda, and the two Dalek ones, Resurrection and Revelation of the Daleks. And because they, at the time, were the only classic series um, stories that had not been novelized by Targets. Once John Peel did cleaned up, a, you know, the, 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 those last two Trout and Dalek stories, basically those were the only gaps in the range. And, and it just, it, it niggled at me. I'd been a target collector, as I mentioned, for a very long time. And, and, and to me, the target books were something to really cherish and, and, and adore. And, and, and it just sort of bugged me that they hadn't been done. I never had any sort of belief that we were going to get to do them officially. I understood the reasons why, you know, they'd been blocked from publication. But it just felt to me like, as, as non-profit fanzines, well, hey, why don't we just do them ourselves? So, so we did. And, uh, yeah, they were they were very popular for a while, and uh, <laughs> then then we were told we had to stop, <laughs> not to put too fine a point on it. So now they're just available free online. The problem was we were selling them. We always sold everything non-profit. I never made any money out of TSV. Never made any money out of those novelizations. Everything was at cost. I was very very clear about that all the way through. But the perception, because we were charging the money for the photocopying and the postage, the perception was that we were profiting from this copyrighted stuff. Mm. And also what was happening was that people overseas were buying these novelizations from us and then reselling them ah. at, huge, at huge profit. And this came to the attention of some of the people who actually had vested interests in the series. I'm not going to name any names. Um, who, who, who basically got in contact and, and got very stern of us and basically said, look, you know, you may not be making a profit yourself, so we're not going to prosecute you or anything, but we need you to cease and desist because, because other people are profiting by this. So we had to take them off the market, but, but they are, they are freely available. We've, we've made them available on, on our, on the website many years ago just to deter. The, 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 the resale market, because otherwise people would be like selling them for astronomical amounts of money. And how did you novelize them? Did you actually get copies of the scripts and translate that into prose, or did you have to sit down and watch the story? And it differs. Um, for the for Shada, we had definitely had a copy of the of the script as well as the video. Obviously, the video of the completed scenes. Um, uh, City of Death was just the video. Pirate Planet, we had 
the video plus um, an early version of the script which had a lot of deleted scenes that we were able to put back in. Resurrection, we had a copy of the script um, and Revelation was just off, off video. So yeah, depending on what we could get our hands on at the time. Did you take your approach to writing them from the target novelizations or from the new adventures? I wrote two of them myself, so I can I can answer that. Oh, two and a half, technically, because I ghost wrote um, the rewrite. We'd, when we originally did Pirate Planet, when David Bishop did Pirate Planet, um, he just had the video. Years later, when we wanted to reissue it as part of a set, um, we, we basically, I went back to David and said, do you want to make any changes? And David said, well, you know, it'd be nice to update it a bit. I got in touch with Andrew Pixley, whom I mentioned I was in contact with by that time, and Andrew had a copy of the script. And and Andrew sent me all these scenes that weren't in the finished version, so all this material that we could put back in. And so I said to David, hey, we've got all this extra material. Now, David, being a very busy professional writer, had no time to do this. So I basically ghost wrote all those scenes, got his approval, and, and put those in. So Pirate Planet's half, you know, there's a percentage of Pirate Planet's written by me. So that's how I did that one. Um, Sharda was my work. I, I, I novelized that. I, my approach to that one was to do a Terence Dix, because I didn't want to emulate Doug's Adam, so it was a he said, she said. Let, let let the dialogue speak for itself and not try and embellish it too much. With Resurrection of the Daleks, which was the other one I authored by myself, I, I, I basically just went to town on that and did a Benaranovich like he did for that, that awesome novelization he did of um, Remembrance mm. of the Daleks, where he just goes inside the head of a Dalek and tells the story from all different perspectives and has all these historical excerpts and everything. And I thought that was just brilliant. So I tried to do, tried that approach. Possibly not the most successful attempt at it. And we're talking many years ago now. 15 years ago I wrote that, I think. Oh, yeah. Gosh, long time. Yeah. <laughs> it really is past history. But yeah, that was my approach with that one. It's funny because, I mean, like everyone else, I was raised on, on Terence Dix's mm. sort of more basic novelizations. But when I was writing f- uh, f- fiction for, uh, for Sonic and a couple of overseas fanzines, I took the... I took the new adventure approach where you would attempt to give uh, a deeper a deeper characterization to the supporting characters and even to the doctor you, you know occasionally I'd get into the doctor's head which was a big no-no and and some of that was inspired by the new adventures approach the new adventures are a hugely inspirational for me but to be honest it was the it was the novelizations by Terence Dicks particularly that got me reading and writing I I I say that Terence taught me to read and taught me to write hmm. because I can remember I can remember my earliest novelizations, and I would have been getting them from the library from a young age, just borrowing them and reading them before I started collecting them myself. And I'd struggle at first. You know, they seemed like daunting things to just get through by myself. I was, you know, only six or seven at the time. And then, you know, uh, these made me a voracious reader, and I went on to read a lot of other stuff that wasn't Doctor Who, and, you know, after that, because I'd learned to read through reading these books. So, yeah, I, I credit the, the target novelizations with, with making me a reader and a writer. And and to be honest, when I was reading those target novelizations at primary school, my reading ability, you know, they, 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 if you remember at primary school, they measure you all the time in terms of how you're ranking in the class, in terms of reading and writing and spelling. Those three abilities shot way above the rest of the class. I was I was performing way above the rest of my peers. Hopeless at any other subject, but in terms of reading, writing, and 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 all that sort of thing, spelling, fantastic. I, that I know I, that's totally down to the target novelizations because at that age, that's all I was reading. Terence Dix, thank you, you. <laughs> I owe you so much. Terence Dix, OBE. It should happen. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Sir Terence. Which articles or which aspects of TSV did you enjoy reading the most? Did you like the fiction over the non-fiction or did you just love it all? Oh, oh gosh. I think the non-fiction appealed to me more. I, I've always been very much interested in how the series is made. That's it's, it's been a big obsession of mine over the years is just, just you know, getting into the minutiae of it and just sort of pulling it apart and, 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 and revisiting things that we believe to be the case that turn out to be a complete nonsense and that someone sort of, you know, has got the completely wrong end of the stick about about certain things. So, so yeah, that really, really has fascinated me. That, but that's not to knock the fiction side of it because, you know, we've had some great writers and, uh, you know, even great artists doing comic strips for us over the years. I mean, talking about people contributors to TSV, I mean, Warwick Gray. Uh, who's now Scott Gray, obviously. He goes under the name Scott Gray, writing the comic strip and editing the comic strip for Doctor Who magazine, has done for many years. He started out on TSV. We, I published his first Doctor Who comic strips. Hmm. So long before he was, a, he was a Doctor Who magazine writer, he was living in New Zealand and, and writing for TSV. And a lot of the early TSVs have got Warwick Gray covers. I was just going to mention that. One of the distinguishing features of TSV for a long, long time was... I mean, the quality of the publication itself and the writing, but also the covers. There, there are some really, really wonderful covers that start off oh, yes, you know, probably from issues the mid-20s or even from the yep. 30s, definitely. It, there's just some wonderful renderings there of characters and, and actors and, and, and scenes. It's, uh, they're, they're quite striking, aren't they? There's a brilliant guy um, uh, still living in Wellington, um, Alistair Hughes, and he was our cover artist for a long time. And Al's just does brilliant line work. He's just so good. You can spot an Alistair Hugh cover a mile off, and he did a lot of them for us. So, hugely talented guy. Yeah, I don't know, I don't know where we would have been without him. But definitely a calling card. I mean, if you look at the, the the cover, you'd sort of get the impression that if the cover's this good, then the contents must must at least match. There's the one that sticks out in my mind where um, I think it's issue fifty seven, the one about the lion. Um, the, yes, when we found the lion, and and you've got Hartnell's face emerging from a map of Palestine. It's just so nicely rendered and done. It's just, it's. I've actually got that on my iPhone, yeah. iPhone right now. Actually, yeah, it's, it is a beautiful cover. It is uh, actually the, the the mention of the map of Palestine. You can just see that there. Yeah. With, uh, no, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Um, now your mention of the lion. Oh, we'll probably get to that a, a little bit later. But so, as you were saying before, after '96, things seemed to drop away. Um, did things pick up when you helped find um, that episode of the Crusades? I don't think that that was a big impetus. We we certainly got a a, a spike in um, readership, membership, whatever you like, because I mean, you know, membership of the club was the subscriber base for TSV. Um, after the McGann movie aired, there was an influx of fandom at that point. And then a year later, we had Tom Baker visited New Zealand and we had him at a fan event. And that created a lot of interest in the club. So we had a real spike in membership around that 97, 98 period. Um, and then the line was early 99. So it's still in that, it's still in that zone. Definitely post 2000, I think, is when the drop off starts to really hit us. So, yeah, the lion's still in that sweet spot. But whether it was down to the discovery of the lion or whether it was just because we had high readership at the time is a bit hard to tell. I'm sure there would certainly have been a case where a lot we would have got an influx of overseas readers um, through people going, oh, New Zealand fandom, they found the lion. We better subscribe to their fans and see what else they're doing. So, yeah, I think definitely, I don't think New Zealand readership increased over that, but certainly I think overseas readership. What happened over time is TSV obviously started out very much as a New Zealand-centric fanzine. 
almost everyone who was a reader of TSV lived in New Zealand. We maybe had a few Australian readers, and that was about it. That was at the beginning. By the end, it was almost 50-50 overseas readers and New Zealand readers. So we, we our New Zealand readers fell off, but at the same time, we gained a large readership from overseas, particularly from the UK and Australia. Early on, did TSV aim to reflect New Zealand fandom back to itself, or was did it have a distinctive New Zealand flavour to it? Under the previous regime, it would have done, yeah. When it, as I mentioned, when it was being done by the club down in Christchurch, um, they would have certainly had a very strong New Zealand flavour to it. I didn't, rightly or wrongly, and some people criticise me about this, I didn't see that as important. To me, it was a fanzine about a UK um, uh, program, and the New Zealandness just came through its contributors. It wasn't important to sort of, to me, to address the whole New Zealandness of it. I, we did do, I didn't ignore it altogether. We did do a number of specials where we documented the history of how Doctor Who had been screened in New Zealand, and there were a couple of articles that looked at New Ze- activity in New Zealand fandom and fan video and all that sort of thing and various bits and pieces that had gone on. There'd been a restaging of um, Seven Keys to Doomsday, the the, uh, the Terence Dix play from the 1970s. That was restaged in New Zealand, for instance, and we did an article about that. But, yeah, I, it just didn't seem to me to be very important to have a strongly New Zealand flavour because, it's you know, it's New, Doctor Who is not a New Zealand property by any shape or form. So, so yeah... I, and some people did criticise me about that and say, oh, you should feel a bit more New Zealandish." But, you know, that was just my feel. Someone had to make a judgment call on that, and it was me who was making the call. Now, you were involved in editing and writing for the fanzine for a, a, a great deal of time. Uh, it's yeah, my long understanding time. It's a long time. I mean, how did you feel that the fanzine evolved over those you know, many years that you were involved directly with it? Well, I mean, I think we've touched on a lot of the points of evolution, definitely getting getting the, uh, the you know the higher profile of contributors. Um, it increased in length. It went from being like quite a short little booklet to being something that was regularly over 100 pages long, really small type towards the end. Um, it's really funny now. I picked up an issue the other day and I go, is it really all that blurry? And I realize it's just that I need to put my reading glasses on because <laughs> at the time I did those fanzines, I didn't need the reading glasses and now I do. So <laughs> that's old age for you. But um, but yeah, in terms of evolution, yeah, and a higher standard of writing, I think, I think as my editing skills got better, I I kind of like would would expect more from the contributors and the contributors who've been with me for a long time were also honing their skills so they were contributing better quality work so we were all evolving together into something that was just that every every issue i felt had to be better than the one before otherwise what was the point of continuing so i was always trying to up myself and i only ever felt like we were failing if i could look at an issue and go well that wasn't quite as good as the previous one as long as I was doing something slightly better, rejiggering it, putting something in that was a bit more interesting, I felt like it was evolving in the sense that each issue was like a stepping stone, if you know what I mean. It was a step up from the one one that had preceded it. And so, yeah, I just got to a point, like, I just can't do this anymore. <laughs> but that took that took 15 years to get to that point. That was 15 years of solid fan produ- fanzine production. I certainly remember being very keen uh, to get 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 the the next issue of of TSV because uh, uh, I I, to, I always thought there was a very high quality production and I, especially with your ability to get some very good writers in and the coverage you gave to certain topics. Do you remember when you first uh, started getting TSV? Um, look, it may have been around the time uh, that the line was found. Right. 
I, look, yeah. that may have been the impetus. I mean, it is a long time ago now. When we're talking about evolution, then you're coming to it reasonably late. You were, all the all the kinks are being ironed out by that point, if you like. And I remember starting to buy it regularly as it was coming out from, I suppose, that point, but also going back and getting some back issues. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it was uh, definitely a treat and one to, and one I was looking forward to every uh, whenever it was made available. I had to bring a whole stack over from New Zealand back to Melbourne because a mate of mine knew somebody in New Zealand and either had purchased the copies of this person or got them somehow. But in my suitcase, I had like 20 or 30 issues. So (laughs) when I was in New Zealand working, I'd come home and and read a a copy of TSV. And and they were great. And the copy I've still got is the one where you uh, detailed the recovery of the uh, New Zealand sensor clips. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah, I've still got that one uh, kicking around somewhere. That's the purple cover one, isn't it? Delgado's in the front, is that right? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, the Web of Fear clips. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not that they're particularly relevant anymore. (laughs) Back then they were. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, back then, yeah. yeah. So, Paul, in a sense, all good things come to an end. You you stopped editing, is that right, and you handed it over? Yeah, uh, it was was a gradual process. It wasn't like one day I woke up and thought, right, I'm not doing this anymore. Um, I, I was wanting to downscale my involvement just because simply I just felt like I had I, I had le- felt like I, there was nothing more I could do to the fanzine to improve it. Like I mentioned, I wanted to improve every issue. And I felt like I was getting to the point where I just didn't know what else to do with it. Um, there was no Doctor Who series on television, so we were running out of new things to say. Mm. Um, the VHS range was winding down and the DVD range was starting up, which meant we were starting to revisit stories that we would had previously focused on in previous issues when we'd done the VHS stuff. Now we were doing it all over again for the DVDs. Um, Big Finish only had a very sort of minority interest in New Zealand. There were only a handful of readers who were actually seemed to be following Big Finish. So while we could cover that and interview the people involved, we interviewed Gary Russell and Nicholas Briggs and people like that, and they were very cooperative and helpful because they obviously wanted to plug their stuff. But, you know, you weren't really engaging a large part of the readership. So I kind of felt like it was a bit sort of... I could see the writing on the wall in terms of Doctor Who dying away as an interest in about sort of 2002, I guess. And um, a friend of mine, Adam, who, who people know as Adam Christopher, um, as, who's now a novelist, um, he he was um, someone who'd been a TSV subscriber for many years. He'd been writing for me since he was at school. I'd published... Now, now that he's a big name novelist and he's got a number of <laughs> awards and novels i can still put my hand up and he'll 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 commit to this too that that um i published his first fiction <laughs> <laughs> even though he's a big name now yeah, he's very successful successful now i mean other than his science fiction he's also moved into novelizing elementary so congratulations to him and he's still a good mate whenever he's in new zealand we always catch up for dinner so yeah actually just thinking about it new zealand fandom uh, punches above its uh, you know numerical weight definitely does Definitely does. I mean, you yeah. mentioned Warwick, Warwick Gray and, and David Adam, Bishop. Yeah, yourself. Yeah, um, yeah it's uh, it's it's uh, actually more so than Australia. I can only think of um, and John Preddle, who's obviously had um, yes, of course. Uh, yes. Tom, Time Link, which is the the Telos book published. So yeah, we're we're, we're awesome. All right. <laughs> you are. But you guys are too, I'm sure. <laughs> no, 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 Mark. Who, who who's who's good on the international scene for Australia? There's Kate Orman. Oh, Kate Orman's John, a big John, name. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, John, John Bloom is... But he's an import voice. for you, though, isn't he? Exactly, exactly. Uh, is there anyone else, Me, Mark? Yeah. Yeah. who was? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, I can't think of any. That's that's how that's how we rate, really. But you guys have got so many, so much larger fandom over there. It doesn't really compute, does it? Yeah, no, it's strange, isn't it? 
So you did the handover, the gradual handover to, to Adam, and you've you, you moved away. Adam came on board to um, be the regular DVD reviewer. Um, I was a late adopter of DVD. I, I didn't have a DVD player right back at the start of the Doctor Who DVD range, so he, he basically handled that whole side of it, and I left him to it. And he, he just was quite enthusiastic for TSV um, and, and wanted to keep going with it. And I basically said to him, look, you, when, when I said, put in TSV, I said, you know, I'm looking for a new editor. He put his hand up straight away and said, I'll do it. And so I said, fine. So we did two or three issues as co-editors so he could get a feel for it. Well, I was basically sort of like, you know, still managing the day-to-day stuff and he was taking on more and more and more responsibility of every issue and then just eventually go right adam it's all yours and i'll step right back and i still right to the end of tsv i still managed the mail out i still did the handled the printing and the mailing and the subscriptions and the finances so i never dumped that side of it it was just the actual creating of the fanzine which to be honest was the majority of the work i, I left to adam by the end and adam was actually producing tsv from the uk because he immigrated to the uk while he was editor as well but, you know, with the glory of the internet, you can do it from anywhere in the world, really. That's mm-hmm. exactly it. Yeah, he'd just, um, just send me the files, and uh, then I'd take them to the printer, and we'd get them produced. Bob's your uncle. Yeah, pretty much. Which was a far cry from the days of, like, you know, print stick and photocopying. <laughs> <laughs> now, you, obviously, you didn't abandon writing for Doctor Who. You moved on, and uh, latterly... Uh, well, tell us about your, your writing with, with Doctor Who. I should mention, first of all, that the day that I gave... Almost the day that I gave up doing... Well, the, the very issue where I announce I'm stepping down as editor, what's the big news in that issue? It's that the series yeah. is coming back. The <laughs> irony of that, you know. That's <laughs> like Jerry, Jeremy Bentham in Envision. Oh, I've just finished it yeah. and the new series comes back and he goes, oh, bugger this, I'm not doing this anymore. I just couldn't believe the time. I'd spent 15 years keeping the flame alive. And the moment where I said, oh, sod it, I'm giving it all up, <laughs> it comes back. So there are certain people who say to me, you should have done that a lot earlier. <laughs> because then the series would have come back <laughs> you're to blame I am to blame I'm to blame for the series going back <laughs> no I didn't have any regrets I, I, I was ready to let someone else have a crack at it anyway was it hard though to see somebody else edit it I mean you were still doing obviously um, the production side no good lord no I was I, look 15, 15, 15 years and, and 60 odd issues of TSV I, I, to be honest you know it was, a, it was a delight to see it keep going under someone else's editorship not at, I, don't, I didn't regret it for a day I still wrote if I had a twinge of oh I want to still contribute then I wrote something for it and I did so you know I wasn't wasn't completely on the outside. It's interesting because um, friends of ours they took over the Doctor Who Club in Victoria about 2012, when uh, just before the 50th anniversary, and the Sonic Screwdriver magazine wasn't in a good state. So they these guys came back, rescued it. Like you said before, they were the only two writers for the first couple of issues. Sure. And then by chance, I sent them an email and said, "I just watched mm-hmm. Planet of the Giants DVD. You know, God help me." And they said, <laughs> "Would you like to write a review about it?" Yeah. And I thought. I haven't done a review for about 20-odd years. So I sort of sat myself down with it with a PC. It was great. You can do it with a PC. And, mm. and just knocked out a review. And obviously refined it and sent it off. And they said, yep, great. No worries. Where's the next one? And it just started all over. It just started all over again. <laughs> That's how the treadmill begins, Mark. It was just writing DVD reviews where previously I was writing VHS reviews and still using the same gags. 20 years later. <laughs> that was the problem I was finding with TSV was, like I mentioned, we were starting to revisit the same material because we'd just run out of fresh things to say. Is there a place for fanzines in 2015? Oh, it's a hard question, isn't it? 
there's there are no fanzines that I know of being produced in New Zealand currently. How many would you say are being produced in Australia at the moment? There's two I definitely know of. Uh, I'd even chance maybe saying three. So Data Extract still going, Sonic Screwdriver still going. I think there's another one, but I'm just not too sure. I know there's probably only two or three coming out of the UK these days. Yeah, the Doctor's News page is always um, promoting fanzines. I, I used to be a contributor to the Doctor Who news page, and it's more that they wait for people to send in material. So I think it's more that those fanzines that do get promoted, the editors have so basically put together a fairly decent press release and sent it into them. That's that's really how how they got their stuff up. That's where we went wrong, Rob. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to speak for them now because I'm not. I don't really contribute much to the news page anymore. But when when I was, that seemed to be what was happening: is that the stuff would come in and one of us would write up a, a story about it. And the distribution these days is much easier. Obviously, this PDF and and off you go. I mean, the, the data extract still printed. Um, Sonic Screwdriver is still printed. They did do offer a PDF version, but there's still a place for them. Do are they dual these days? Are they both print and digital? Data extract is only print. And I think mm-hmm. the uh, Sonic Screwdriver is dual. Because what we did the, by the end of TSV uh, ended up in, I think the last issue was produced in 2009. But by that point, we were doing the print version followed after a short delay to give the, the print you know, the print subscribers a, a, a good crack of it. We would issue the, the, the PDF online so that people could just read it for free. Because it just seemed like a logical thing to do, you know, with the... With the everyone being online just just to say hey you know here's the issue well if people google the new zealand doctor who fan club there is a substantial archive of tsvs available there as pdfs there which is a fantastic resource a fantastic resource it, it is great it is great the downside of it is you st- i start to see it all over the internet because people will just copy without attribution and a lot of the stuff, particularly the really good stuff like Andrew Pixley's stuff, the interviews. I mean, we interviewed Stephen Moffat, for God's sake, and that, that interview with Stephen Moffat has cropped up all over the place without a single person saying where it came from. You know, I know damn well where it came from. It's got the typos and everything reproduced, you know. It's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 the, and, you know, and, and the, the illustrations and, the, and, and all that sort of stuff that I put into the archive has just basically been... I mean, that's the nature of the internet, isn't it? They just, people just find stuff and they, they reproduce it on their own pages. So I can't really knock that because everyone's doing it to everyone else. But So I don't feel particularly personally aggrieved by it, but it did put, make me sort of go, sort of take stock and go, hold on, no, I'm not going to do this anymore. So the archive does stop about 10 issues before the end of TSV because I just basically was getting a little annoyed at how everyone was just stealing from it, really. So. Isn't that interesting? Because I know um, we do a segment on our podcast where we go back and look at the old DWB uh, fanzines and sort of read out the most, uh, the more crazy articles from that uh, publication. But uh, (laughs) the other fanzine I used to love, and I still do read uh, occasionally, is the Scaro magazine. And they had a really good article in there. And I contacted the author of that article and said, can we reproduce this on our blog? And he actually came back and said, no, I was fine with that. But at least we actually made contact with them and asked where you, you know, people now just pinching your stuff and saying, here it is. There was a book that came out, and I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but it was a professionally published book overseas, and they used an article from TSC without ever asking me. That was a bit of a, you know, I, I bought a copy of the book online and, you know, just thinking, oh, this is a collection of articles that would be interesting to read, and then sort of turned to a page and see an article from TSV, and it was like, you know, it's kind of, really? It turned out they had contacted the author and got the author's permission, but the, the you know, the author also felt that they, that TSV had given, you know, I had given permission as the editor, but no, I'd never even been asked. So. It would have been a nice courtesy, you know. Yeah. 
I'm not saying not saying I would have blocked it given that the writer. You know, of course I wouldn't. If the writer wants to 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 have the article reproduced, fine. But just a sort of courtesy. It's a courtesy thing. thing. It's uh, missing these yeah. days on the on the internet, isn't it? I think so. And um, now TSV uh, sadly uh, no, is no longer printed. Is my understanding? Is that right, Paul? Yeah, 2009. So um, the last the last issue was talking about Matt Smith being cast. That's how long ago that it wound up. So yeah. And um, and what do you think? I mean, on that slightly sad note, what do you think is the legacy of TSV? I mean, we've spoken about the, the writers who've gone on to uh, other things. Who've blossomed. Well, well, what about? <laughs> I mean, is my personal legacy with TSV? Well, no, we're not going to forget that. Don't <laughs> worry. <laughs> but you're talking about more generally the legacy of TSV. Well, more generally, yes. The, we talked about the archive. I mean, that's obviously the that's the accessible legacy for new series fans because that's still there. Anyone who comes into into Doctor Who fandom, and obviously Doctor Who, because Doctor Who's so big these days, it's huge internationally. There are Doctor Who fans, you know, all all ages. It just and then that's great. I think it's brilliant. You know, it's cross generational. It's fantastic. But it means that there are people who are probably googling and discovering that there was a Doctor Who fan club and a Doctor Who fanzine, and all that material's there for them to read and enjoy. That's brilliant. So that's the big legacy of of of, of TSV, I think, is that that material was preserved. You know, if I got hit by a bus tomorrow, that fan, that that website will still be there, and people can read the work that I did. So yeah, it's it'll outlast me, I think. Having been involved in fanzines, have they helped us in our obviously professional and working careers? For me, there's two strands to that. One, one I've always wanted to write books myself. One of the reasons that I kind of like wanted to downscale my involvement with TSV is because I felt like I didn't have enough time to pursue that. And I basically came up with the idea of doing a episode guide to Doctor Who. But rather than doing the television series, do it about the comic strips. And it just amazed me that no one had ever done a book about this. Because I kind of felt instinctively that that was what was missing. Because Doctor Who is probably the most um, referenced subject, or certainly the most re- referenced television series of all time, I think. There are so many non-fiction reference books that have been published over the years about Doctor Who. I've got shelf loads of the things. And we're not even talking about the fiction. We're talking about all the all the non-fiction books, all the, all the episode guides, all the, all the, all the behind-the-scenes stuff. It's just a phenomenal amount. I go, why isn't there one about the comic strips? Because the comic strips are only a year younger than the television series they've been going for 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 decades so i pitched the idea because i really like i looked at what i thought was the best program guide at the time and to me it was um the um david j howe and stephen james walker pro um television companion and and so i pitched the idea of doing a comic strip companion to them for telos which was their publishing company and both david howe and stephen james walker had been tsv readers for a long time so I had the advantage that when I contacted them, they knew instantly who I was, and we'd been corresponding. I'd interviewed them for TSV. I'd featured Telos books in TSV. We we knew each other. We had a relationship. We we were colleagues in that respect. So they, I guess, they would have paid more attention to my pitch than they might have done if I was a complete unknown. And 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 so I basically pitched them the idea, and they they seized on it instantly and said, yeah yeah, go for it, go for it. We really like this idea, and so. That took me six years to write because it was an wow. enormous book. 
and that just covers up to 1979 and I'm currently working on a sequel to that the second volume of the comic strip companion which covers the 1980s era of the comic strips but they are hugely hugely involving works of reference because you've got to get all the facts right and there is so much to cover and so much detail so yeah how did you go about researching the early years of the comics because they'd be quite hard to obtain wouldn't they combination of factors um i've got some of the issues myself okay um a friend of mine in new zealand has got quite a sizable collection of the uh tv comics and the countdown tv action issues that the john pertwee strips were in so he was quite happy bless him to lend me his collection to so i could you know reference all of those and i found online one day when i was googling something completely different a group that doesn't exist anymore but it did at the time um which was dedicated to sharing scans of the comic strips that each other were hidden in their collection if you see what i mean yeah, yeah. so if you had a partial collection of the tv comics you jo- you could join up with this group and share what you had digitally with the people who also had some of those issues in the hope that by combining all your resources you might end up a complete set so i because i'd borrowed these issues i had some issues myself i borrowed some off a friend i was able to fill in a lot of their gaps and we got down to the point where we were only missing two strips and so we had every single strip from 1964 onwards apart from two and these were two Troughton um, issues of tv comic and when i got in touch with telos and said i really want to do this book and and you know this is a really you know i, th- I think this is a great idea pitched it to them wrote a sample chapter that and they were really keen got me to sign a contract and i said there's one condition i'm missing two of these and it happened to be that um stephen james walker had the the issues and was able to scan them for me so that that filled in the last the last gap so you know i and also when i went over to um the uk on one of my trips i spent two or three days sitting in the um british newspaper library in hendon just going through their bound volumes of TV comic because it's one thing to have the strips as scanned things, but you also want to look at what else was in the issue in terms of like, did they publicize it on the front cover? Were there letters to the editor? You know, were there advertisements for upcoming issues? Did they mention it elsewhere in the issues? So, so I, I, I laboriously went through every single issue of TV comic from 1964 through to 1979 over the course of three days, sitting in the library, just leafing through these volumes. <laughs> a labor of love but yeah no but you know it was it was it was great because no one had really done this research this level of detail before so i felt like i was covering new ground and you're working on the second one at the moment yes this is covering from um beginning of doctor who weekly um in 1979 you know when we got uh, dave gibbons mm. and um, uh, pat mills and john wagner doing the iron legion and it runs through to just before ace joins um in 1990 so it's it's up to the the end of the solo mccoy strips if you like I just needed a place to split it because the original plan was to do the second volume was going to go from from Iron Legion through to the end of the McGann era and that was just too too big too much too much distance so it would be 25 years worth of comic strip so I needed to cut it in half and 1990 seemed like a good good split yeah some of those Colin Baker strips are fantastic the Voy- was it Voyager was one of them yeah would, that's that what's what really really got me into loving the comic strips was that era because and, and as coming back to what I said much earlier too you got to remember that I didn't see Colin Baker on television in the, in the 1980s, right up to, you know, 
when McCoy started. It was when I finally caught up with all the Colin Baker stories. So when I was reading those comic strips like Voyager and, and all the other ones that the Colin Baker's Doctor was in, that was my perception of the Doctor, was the comic strip Doctor. I hadn't seen him on television. I hadn't seen any of his stories at all. Were you shocked when you saw them? Yes, slightly. I think I think the comic strip Colin Baker Doctor is is a lot more sort of gregarious and and friendly and um, a much more sort of likable persona. Maybe mm. that sort of unlikable aspect of sort of shouting at people and and being quite brusque isn't necessarily so obvious in the comic strip. I think in translating you know, the TV series to uh, to the to the comic medium, Paul, uh, how successful do you think? Um... The the, the 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 writers and the illustrators have been. Does it does does Doctor Who work in comic strips? I suppose its longevity indicates yes. But what do you think? I think the the comic strips being so vast, um, you know, it's been going so long. I think early on it probably wasn't quite as creative. They were quite very basic stories. I mean, there were bursts of creativity. There's a, there's a story in you know the early sixties where um, Hartnell's Doctor um, called In Reverse, where the entire story runs backwards. And that's that's quite creative. That's something they didn't do on television. That's, that would be a hard thing to to achieve as a television story. But they do that quite successfully in the comic strip. But by and large, they were fairly basic sort of run around stories. And it was sort of like uh, they they had peaks and troughs, I think, just like they do with the television series. And I think it's really only when when Doctor Who Weekly kicks off in 1979 that they really start to embrace the the, the sheer scale that a comic strip offers. You know, when you've got stories like the Iron Legion, where you've got vast battle scenes and this whole arena, and, and you just kind of know there's no way they could do that in 1979 television budget. They're obviously going, no, we, you know, we can take Doctor Who and we can put it on a vast, grand comic strip scale. And and then when you get to stories like Voyager, where it's set in a lighthouse at the end of the world, and you're thinking, there's no way they could achieve that on their budget, and, and, and it just it's far more creative. When the comic strip's at its best, it's doing stuff that couldn't possibly be done on television, but it's still very recognisably Doctor Who at the same time. Some of my favourite stories are actually the comic strips. I mean, as we've talked before, the Voyager series. But also there was that one story that featured uh, Davros and the Sixth Doctor, and I think it was a link between Revelation and Remembrance. Like... Emperor of the Daleks, is that Yeah, it might Yes, but I, th- I think that, that particular scene was like a prequel uh, strip up above the gods, yeah, where he's in the yes. TARDIS with Davros, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, I just, that exemplified everything for me that was, you know, really good about the strips. That the, just, just, I mean, it didn't have to be, uh, you know, massive fleets of, of battleships in the sky. It was just essentially an extended conversation. <laughs> and uh, I really, that had a great impact on me. That was Paul Cornell, is that right? Did he well, without, without looking it up, I couldn't tell you, but yeah. I have a memory that it is, and given the quality of Cornell's writing... I, I know I think Cornell that... definitely did The Emperor of the Daleks uh, yeah. main strip that that was linked to. One of the reasons that the, the comic strip companion took me so long to write, I mentioned it took me six years from beginning to end, was that um, while I was starting to write the book, I got an email out of the blue from Martin Wiggins, who was the editor of the um, the, the uh, production information subtitles for the DVD range, saying would i like to try out for them and that was kind of like it was one of those emails you go why is he contacting me <laughs> they're going like has he emailed the wrong person and martin was a tsv subscriber so this comes back to our early point of how how fanzines can be a launching board for, for something more 
Um, and T Martin had transpires Martin had just really admired the work I'd done on TSV and just thought I was a good candidate for. He was putting together a team of about six people, maybe six or eight people who who are potential people to write the information subtitles because if you remember about 2007 2008 the DVD started to come out a lot more frequently. Um, they were they were like sort of you know they've been dribbling through at a, at a you know a constant rate but not nearly as frequently and then they started to do the box sets and one every month and it was just a vast volume of because they basically wanted to complete them all by the anniversary in 2013 so there was that sort of five-year period where they were just really concentrated release schedule and so they needed a lot of these writers to do the information subtitles and uh so they had to have a team all working on different stories at once because no one person could do them all because they were too frequent. And so so I was asked to try out and I was given... Um, well, I say try out. I think my, my whatever I did was going to be used. It was just whether I was going to get any more work out of it. So, you know, if if you weren't any good, you might only do one rather than getting constant recommissions. So I was given Plant of Fire as my first first story to work on. And that happened to the the commission happened to coincide with the same trip I made to the UK to go to the um, British Newspaper Library. I went to the um, the fabled Cavisham Britain Archive Centre, which is a, a fascinating uh, series of buildings owned by the BBC, where they just basically keep all of the paperwork from from their television programmes. And, and, and basically in storage and you go along there and you sit down in their reading room and you request a file and they bring it out to you on a trolley and, and you sit there and you go through this original paperwork that would have been handled by the people that worked on the series. You know, some of them might have coffee stains on them and they might be in the wrong order or anything. They might be the wrong story in the file. It's basically just, you get the sense that it's paperwork that's just been shuffled off the desk of the producer or the director or whatever, put into a file and then just held there for years afterwards. And it's just fascinating to open up a file on Plant of Fire and, and just see like the actual requisitions for the, the passport forms for Peter Davison and Nicola Bryant and all these people who were off to Lanzarote. And, and just this really sort of, in some ways, quite trivial stuff. And it all, it all sort of is, is, is worth documenting so that you can, when you come to do the DVD subtitles, you can put all this on the bottom of the screen. What was it like trying to distill all that information? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vast amount of information. The biggest problem is what I found is when you had too much information and, and what to discard. You know, you've got so much you want to say, but you've only got a certain amount of time to say it in. Because when I first started doing it, it seemed too daunting. You've got 90 minutes, basically, for a four-part story. Mm. And, and you've got to fill that up with subtitles somehow, and each one's only going to be on screen for, say, five to seven seconds. And you go, oh, that's a hell of a lot of work. But then by the end of the research, you go, I've got so much. How do I fit it all in? Particularly when you find deleted scenes. Because how do you tell a deleted scene when the scene is, when you basically got to talk about it over material that, <laughs> you know, you don't have that gap to talk. You've got, you've got to actually talk about it beforehand or after it. And you've also got to put the content in some sort of order to what's appearing on the, on the screen as well. What you're seeing on screen and what you're hearing on screen dictates the order to a certain extent, but you can also slot in general information when there's 
because occasionally you'll get a scene where two characters are talking and you've really exhausted all the things you can say so you just talk more generally about how the story was made over that material they're kind of like they they're the bits you fill in last when you've done all the all the bits where you point out a, a, an error in the dialogue or the boom coming into shot or the or the or the, the you know the changes to the how the scene was written and all this sort of thing where it was shot which day they were in studio all that sort of stuff that relates to that scene when you've done all that and you've got the gaps left in your script then you go back and you fill in all the general detail about the story and you handled five of the davison discs is there a reason for that do you particularly love that era or is this how they were allotted out to you yes and yes <laughs> i do i do love the davison era uh, I, I would have quite happily done all of the davison stories if that had been the opportunity um some of those were special editions because they've been done before i did um andrazani and resurrection of the daleks which had been issued previously but they wanted to redo them with more when, when the when the i should say when the production subtitles first started off they were pretty basic if you look at some of the early ones you will see that they're mostly made up of quotes from doctor who magazine and other sources they basically said you know the director said this about this scene or, or whatever it's only sort of part way through the dvds that they get access to the paperwork and really start to go into the detail rather than what people remember about the story so it's it's going back to our first sources if you know what i mean you know primary sources so stripping away all the anecdotes that people have been telling for years and actually getting back to the nitty-gritty of, of, of what was being done on the day by the people who are working it on the day so so yeah it's a bit more purist in my way of thinking about it a bit andrew pixley ish yeah and that's what i was talking about before about trying to beat beat the pixley find find something in that paperwork that he might have missed i mean a classic example not not by me but by one of the other writers was to find out who originally played um sarah jane smith yes. so that was that was that was a find by one of the dvd writers one of the things that i found out people have said for years um the reason that Davros looks different in Resurrection of the Daleks is because they had to remould the mask for Terry Malloy's face. It's not actually true. They they tried they tried to get a mould made of the original John Friedlander mask from Genesis of the Daleks, but Friedlander, when he'd left the BBC, had taken the mould with him and was charging too much money for its use. So they basically said, okay, we've got to do a fresh sculpt because we're not going to pay this amount of money for for it to get it get a new cast made off that so that's because it's in the paperwork there's there's actual documentation going back and forth are we prepared to pay this amount of money for this no we're not therefore we'll do a new sculpt i mean how big are these files usually i mean about 400 pages 200 pages it very yeah it can be it varies by story it varies by how much is just someone's bothered to keep there are there are ones where you've got multiple like um requisitions for you know, there might be duplicates of exactly the same form, which have been quite frustrating. You know, you'll see, oh, it's a huge file here, and it turns out that there's, there's duplications of the coach that goes out to the quarry for uh, Keizer Andrazani. You know, there's the one that goes to the transport officer, there's the one that goes to the director, there's the one that goes to the producer, and it's kind of like, yes, this is the same information sheet after sheet. And then you get other ones where it's really quite quite detailed information. We can't say anything. We can't say, we can't use everything, for instance, because all the all, all the artists' salaries are in there, for instance. I know exactly how much Peter Davison was paid. I know how much Nicola Bryant was paid. I know how much, you know, but I can't, you know, that, that stuff's not. <laughs> but you can tell us offline, though, can't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not doing that on record. What sort of feedback did you get from DVD uh, viewers? Did, did, did anyone take the time to contact you or try to contact you and say, well done? That was a great set of uh, production notes. Yes, some people did. The, the The problem with the reviews when the when the DVDs first came out is that some reviewers would just kind of just 
did it did i ever overlook the um the subtitles because they're kind of like oh i'll watch the story and then i'll watch the extras but they they either forget or they don't bother to watch the subtitles so they just don't comment on them I, th I believe, and I could be mistaken with this, but I believe it to be the case that when Doctor Who magazine was sent the advanced copies so they could do their reviews in time for publication, the subtitles weren't on the discs. They, they were supplied them on tape, so they didn't have the subtitles, so they couldn't review that aspect of the story. I'm, I believe that was the case with some of the ones they reviewed. I know they, they started talking about subtitles later on. Um, so it was a frustration for me where I'd do all this work and I'd wait for months and months for it to come out and then all the reviews would come out and there'd be no mention of the subtitles whatsoever and I'd go, oh, that's sad. But then other people would, would write effusively nice reviews about, about the subtitles and I'd go, oh, that's really nice. So generally I got quite a positive response when people did bother to mention them. So that was, that was good. So I liked those reviews. <laughs> it was nice to get a nice positive review. Of course, of course. I always felt that it's there's there's a there's a really great article by um, Nicholas Pig in Doctor Who magazine uh, where he 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 basically interviews a number of us about the the subtitles and he goes into great detail about how they how they're put together and everything. So. Are they in the latest issue of DW? Because they're doing a big feature on the VHSs and the DVD range, aren't they? The latest issue is quite interesting because being a contributor, a, you know, a freelance contractor to the the DVD range. Certain things would come down to me in emails. Um, there was a there was a point, for instance, where prior to that we'd been able to, if we wanted to find something out, I could basically go online and say, "Hey guys, on Facebook or Twitter or wherever, hey guys, I'm working on this story for the DVD range. I've I got stuck on this point. You know, anyone got any fresh ideas about how to tackle this particular bit?" It came down an edict to all of the the writers on 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 the DVD range do not talk to anyone about the work you were doing. It was a non-disclosure agreement, basically. And that became very frustrating because it meant that we couldn't discuss what the work we were doing. So if there was something that we couldn't quite figure out, it wasn't until the desks came out that someone would point a chip up and say, I had that information all along. So that that was kind of... And these are classic story DVDs, so surely you can make a reasonable educated guess that if a story hasn't isn't out on DVD, that we're probably working on it. So why, you know? But what I was going to say about that article that's in the latest Doctor Who magazine is it talks a bit about the politics of the of, of the the producer of the DVD range and 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 his his policies, and it 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 makes a bit more sense to me because I really wasn't aware of all the sort of the background to all that. And so, yeah, it's quite a fascinating article for me, even though I'd been involved in, in doing the DVDs. And also not just the production subtitles, because I'm also on some of the DVDs as, as an interview subject as well. You're on the Missing Years, the revised Missing Years DVD? I am, with, with Neil Lambes, who found The Lion with me, and Bruce Grenville, who owned the film print. That was shot in my. That was shot in my living room, incidentally. Yeah, that's right. The armchair looks very comfy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I have to say, the armchair fell apart some years later, and, and we had to get rid of it. And it was a real sort of wrench because it's going. This is a DVD. <laughs> <laughs> the collector gene in me didn't want to get rid of the armchair. <laughs> could have sold it on uh, eBay, yeah. Paul. Uh, yeah, I could have done. And then it really wasn't in the greatest condition. The cats had been ah, at well. it. Um, the 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 other thing I did was when I was in London one time, Marcus Hearn, who was did a lot of the extras for the DVDs, got in touch with me and, and we were chatting about the... Because um, I was writing the comic strip book at the time. He was doing a series of um, DVD extras on the history of the Doctor Who comic strips called Strip for Action. And he said, look, you know, have you got a day free while you're in London? And I had, you know, he said, look, I said, I'm leaving next week, so it was right at the end of my trip. And he says, look, if I get a studio day together really quickly, can 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 you come in studio for an afternoon and sit down in front of the camera? 
and talk about comic strips. So I went in one day and we just, he just basically ran through a series of questions and we covered off. We talked about the Dalek strips in the 1960s. We talked about the Pertwee era of the comic strip and we talked about the McGann era of the comic strip. Just bang, 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 just like that in all in one session. And then he cut it up across all the, all the documentaries. So that was quite nice. So it was a bit of, bit of paid work. So that was good to... Good to get on there. It's always good, good always to get good. paid for you. Well, I mean, you're on, it, you're yes. on a professional DVD. I think they're off of course, to pay you. Of <laughs> but yeah, no, that's, that's good. The, the impression that one gets from uh, you know, looking at the DVDs and, and listening to interviews with people like Ed Stradling that uh, it's a labour of love, really, isn't it? For everyone concerned. It's hard to understand how you, how you can make a living out of it because the mm. money isn't that great. And to be honest, I mean, the quickest turnaround I ever did on a, a set of those... DVD information subtitles probably took me about a month of solid work, and that was the quickest. Wow. You know, it basically usually took me about three or four months worth of work to do one from start to finish. So, yeah, for the money, I'm not going to go into the money, obviously, that I got paid, but <laughs> it didn't reflect the amount of work I was putting in. And just before we move on, did, did you find that doing those uh, those those production notes, did it... Did it enhance your enjoyment of the um, of the story, or did it sort of, you know, the, the facts being laid out that bad, did it sort of diminish? I had to watch the stories and such. One of the things I had to do, you get sent a, a copy of the disc of the, of the story on a DVD with the subtitles burned in, and not sorry, the subtitles, the the time code, the time code burned into the you know to the screen, so you can when you write your your script for the subtitles, you can say exactly at which frame the subtitle pops up and which frame it leaves the screen. So you have like an intro and an outro, sub, you know, a, a time code for, 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 the, for the subtitle. So it's coming in, say, at five minutes, three seconds and four frames. And it leaves at, you know, at, you know five minutes and 15 seconds and two frames. So it's, it's on screen for that duration precisely. And that's so that you can time it to the beginning and end of a shot. I'm not talking about a scene, I'm talking about a shot. So when the camera cuts away from one shot to another, even in the same scene, I have to know where those breaks are. So you can imagine, I had to go through the story with a pen and paper and a copy of the script and note down exactly where each of those scene breaks were to the frame, (laughs) the shot breaks. And and, and there might be like hundreds of shots in in one episode. So you can imagine that by the time I've done this, I was like, I never want to watch this story again. I mean, you'd have to because you have to go back and you have to do another pass of it to pick up all the all the bloopers and all the all the all the differences between the script and what's delivered on screen. And you really start. It's not so much you loathe the story after a time. It's kind of like you feel so overly familiar with it, you just can't bear to watch it again. And I have to say that I don't think that I've watched through many of the stories that I worked on since I worked on them. I just want the distance before I can go back to them, if you know what I mean. And Doctor Who in total, classic Doctor Who in particular, did start to feel like work for a time. I would, I'd be actively avoiding watching a Doctor Who DVD because it felt too much like what I was doing in terms of, you know, work on the subtitles. You should try doing a podcast. <laughs> wow. <laughs> does that put you off to what, listening to other people's podcasts? <laughs> it does. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. last thing you want to hear is other people's podcasts. I mean, I do, but I don't listen to as many as what I used yeah, to. So, yeah. case of Andazani, uh, you're not going to put it on in a hurry? Well, I know it so well. I know it backwards. You know, I've, 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 I've detailed it in so much detail. I know everything about it. I, it's almost like I can close my eyes and play it through. It's that detailed that... I, I I can't speak for the other writers who work on the subtitles, but I really I really watch the story in such detail and so many times through in order to pick up every possible nuance while I'm working on it that that 
I, I just know the story backwards. I know the I know the order in which the scenes are recorded. I know exactly when the the location shots were done. I know where there's cutaways for the deleted scenes. It's just, <laughs> I need a bit more distance where I can go back to enjoying them. You had a run of uh, fairly good stories to work on. Just for, I feel sorry for the poor bugger here to work on Tom and the Rani and the Censorites. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, after I did I did the last five Davison stories. Awakening through to Andrazani, and then I did um, uh, Vengeance on Varus. That's all right. Yeah, yeah I like that. Um, I did Dragonfire, which was okay, yeah. and um, I did um, Scream of the Shalka, which is oh, the, yes. the animated yeah. story. What were the production lights like on that? Oh, it was a challenge because at the time they didn't know that um, paperwork existed for it, so they gave it to me because. What was happening, if I didn't make a visit to the UK, someone, poor sod, would actually have to get the production notes out and photograph them for me and send me emails of the photographs of the, of the paperwork. Dear God. So someone would be laboriously sitting there photographing or, or scanning it, one or the other, the whole, the whole file for me and emailing it to me, which they did, bless them, because so otherwise I wouldn't have been able to keep working on, this, on, the, on the range, and they wanted me to, so that's what they did. Um, when it came to Schalke, I was an obvious choice to do it, simply because they didn't think any paperwork had survived. So they're basically telling me, here's Scream of the Shalker, we've got nothing to give you. Here's a copy of, here's a copy of the DVD with the time code, which is what you get anyway, um, and just go for it. <laughs> Make up what you can. So <laughs> two things. One, I mean, they did find the paperwork, but unfortunately it was after the DVD had been done, but that's okay. I knew Paul Cornell. We've been, we've been friends for a while. Um, Paul Cornell actually had his honeymoon in New Zealand and actually um, stayed in his camper van in our driveway for one night. He was writing Scream of the Shalka at the time. So 2003, I think we're talking. So yeah, there was that connection. And there are there are a fair number of um, New Zealand references, some a bit subtle, um, others a bit more obvious. I mean, the first scene of the story is set in New Zealand. So I had that starting point. I emailed Paul Cornell and said, what, what do you remember? What have you kept? Paul was really busy with something else he was doing at the time, maybe writing one of his books or something. But he emailed me, bless him, every single document he kept on his computer related to the story. And this included six different drafts of every episode in script form, which were vastly different. So I had so much material to talk about, even just in terms of the script differences. And so, yeah, I, it, it gave me so much to work on. And then James Goss, who'd also worked on the story as an executive producer, I also got in touch with him and he gave me so much material in terms of anecdotes and paperwork and everything as well. So between Paul and James, bless them, I, I just had so much to work on that I ended up having to leave a lot out because going from a story where I thought, crap, I've got nothing to say, to a story where I've got too much to say. So and that was my final one. So that was my swan song in, in terms of DVDs. And they're not doing DVDs anymore. So sadly, no more work for me. Would you have loved to got your hands on Enemy or Web if they were doing it at the time? I think there would have been a bit of a fight on, given there were only two, only two stories and, and, you know, there were six or eight of us doing the DVD subtitles. I think I would have been way down the list. It's on the to, Underwater Menace. Who worked on yeah. it? I don't think the DVD subtitles were ever done. I do know they made a series. They made some of the extras for the disc before it was before it was cancelled. So it's a shame that that stuff hasn't been put out there. I mean, the latest Doctor Who magazine says it's definitely been cancelled. If that is the case, I, it seems a shame that they they can't release it on iTunes or something like that, mm. just so that people can at least get to see this material because they've already paid for this material. That's right. you know? They've they've yeah. done the extras for it. And and just just put it out there. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't make sense that we we as fans have invested so much money and effort in collecting 
every episode of the series bar one. Yeah. It's kind of like you're forward at the very last minute, if you know what I mean. You've, you've, you've come all this way just to be short one episode. It just feels wrong. Has it been can- cancelled due to just in- indifference? I believe, I believe, and someone might correct me on this, but I believe it to be the case that there's been a personnel change at BBC Worldwide and the people who are now responsible for the DVDs don't have much interest in releasing any classic Doctor Who DVDs. And you know the old, the old regime who were doing the doing the classic range have moved on. Mm. They're they're no longer there, so there's no one there to champion the the Doctor Who DVDs. The the new series DVDs are done by a different different department, so so they're not they're not interested in doing the classic stuff. So if these classic series DVDs go out of print, they are going out of print. Reissuing them. My wife and I run a, a science fiction shop, and we carry the DVDs in stock. And every time we place an order to top up our stock. We get a note back saying this title's out of print. This title's out of print. They're not being reissued, so they are definitely going out of print. I'd say there's probably about fifteen, twenty percent of the range have been deleted so far, and they're just gradually, as the stock's run down and what they've got left in their warehouse, they're not reissuing them. They're not doing new, new pressings of them. So eventually, there'll come a time when all DVD, all Doctor Who DVDs are out of print. At least put them in a season box set or something. It seems obvious to me. They've done the discs. Why not just repackage the existing sis as season box sets? And we get this from our customers who come into the store, because when you've got a fan who's come into Doctor Who through the new series, and they're used to collecting the new series box sets, and they want to go back to the classic series, they're kind of taken aback that they need to buy them story by story. Hmm. They want to be able to buy the box sets. It just seems obvious to me. I had uh, better hurry up and go out and buy the Web Planet then, hadn't I? Well, I think any story you're missing on DVD, I think you need to hurry up and go and buy it, because I think, you know... I don't know about Australia, but certainly in New Zealand, a Genesis of the Daleks has gone out of print. Five Doctors has gone out of print. I had City of Death's out of print as well. Yes, yeah, City of Death, Key to Time, they're all out of print. You know, they're just they're just being deleted left, right, and centre. Even though it's a web planet, Rob, buy it. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm going to. You've got to get now. sensor rights. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll do a two for one deal for you. What, what do you what do you think will be the very last story that will go out of out of print? Do you think Time Lash maybe or Time of the Rady? Tom and Tom and <laughs> because you can just imagine they've got vast stockpiles of that story because no one's buying it in their warehouse. And Jane Baker's <laughs> looking down from the heavens saying, F you fans. <laughs> Paul, uh, you've mentioned you know one episode of Doctor Who. Uh, may never be released. You you were instrumental in co-finding uh, a missing episode of Doctor Who, uh, and if people are interested, they can go find TSV fifty seven off the uh, New Zealand Doctor Who Club uh, website because there's an extensive article written by yourself and I think Neil is that right in, in that issue. Um, I wrote the article, but Neil originally found the episode, so so Neil deserves the credit for actually you know finding where the episode was. Neil contacted me and said. I think I found a missing episode of Doctor Who. Um, do you want to come with me? And we're going to go and meet the guy who's got it. Neil contacted we, I knew Neil from, from years back, but Neil also contacted me because I had a video camera. And Neil was hopeful that... We didn't expect at the time that this guy... We didn't know if he was going to let us borrow the film. So we thought, look, can we just go... We asked him, could we take a video of it? Could we, like, set up the video camera, point it at the screen, and actually video the, the episode, just in case that's the only copy we ever managed to get? That sounds insane now, but that's 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 what... We didn't know the guy. We didn't know whether he, he was going... How cooperative he was going to be. It might have been the only time we got to see it. So we thought, at least get a video copy of it, because he was happy for us to do that. What was it like 
going to the uh, Bruce's house and you know the sense of anticipation perhaps and then sitting in his living room and getting ready to watch it did you sort of think this is going to be a disappointment it's just going to be you know it's going to be something that exists or I mean what was your feeling if you can cast your mind back that far it's a healthy degree of skepticism there was a part of me that I mean obviously you want it to be true you know you go along to these things and you hope like hell that it's going to be true but there was a healthy degree of skepticism because there have been so as you know as fans know there have been so many hoaxes over the years and people wind each other up thinking they've got something and they don't Bruce was very cagey when we got there he'd kind of like he was had he was watching some very long foreign film um, and had only just sat down to watch it. And basically he was saying, well, I'm just going to watch this first and then we're going to, then then we'll do that afterwards. And Neil, who, I didn't know what the film was, but Neil knew it and he leaned across me. He goes, you realize this is like two or three hours long. Oh, God. <laughs> and so we just had to basically sit there and watch this black and white um, art house film for as long as it was on. That was fine, you know. We were we were guests of Bruce. We were you know impinging on his time, so I didn't really want to make a fuss over it. But the back of my mind is thinking, this is just an elaborate hoax. You know, at the end the lights going to come on, and he's going to go Folger, and, and that was sort of running through my mind. And I was getting fidgety and going, look, there's better things I could be doing in my time than sitting in this guy's flat. You know, I don't even know, I don't even know what we're doing here, type thing. But Neil Neil bless him was like, no, no, just he was kind of like sort of you know, no, no, just just bear it out, bear it out. I think there's something here. I think we've got a humor this guy so you know when the when bruce was finally ready to set up his film projection equipment and 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 put the, the film on for us neil and i was kind of sitting there going you know this is starting to feel real it's starting to feel real and then obviously we he was bruce was happy for us to set up my my video camera on a tripod and and, and, and point at the screen so going yeah there must be something here why would he go to them all this effort you know for something that was a hoax and and then he started playing the episode and going, oh, my God, it is real. <laughs> but because we were videoing it and we thought we were only ever going to get to see it once, we didn't want to make any sound. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Because we had the video camera right there with the with the open mic, just recording the sound that was in the room because we didn't have any way of connecting up to the, the old projector. So, <laughs> so Neil and I were just mm. doing hand, hand movements at each other, so like thumbs up, you know. <laughs> Do you retain the videotape? Oh, I don't, wouldn't have anything to play it on anymore, but I'm sure I do. Yeah, yeah, it's not very good quality. And when you got into, I believe afterwards, uh, I mean, certain arrangements are obviously made. What happened afterwards in terms of contacting people in the UK? Neil lives in a different city. He had to go home back to, to um, his his home in Whangarei, which is a couple of hours north of Auckland. And so Neil basically said to me, um, we were obviously sort of jubilant. We, we we went back to my place at night and we were sort of celebrating. We contacted in touch with Steve Roberts at the BBC and going, hey, we've found this episode. You know, this is really great. We'll send you a video t- copy of the videotape to prove that we've got it and everything. And Steve was like emailing back really quickly going, that's fantastic news. Great. Can't wait to see the videotape. So we got a copy of that in the post to him. But Neil had to go home and basically said to me, look, you know, obviously the BBC is going to want to borrow this, but I'm going to have to leave it to you. So from that point onwards, I had to deal with Bruce on my own in order to negotiate borrowing the film. And when I originally contacted Bruce, I, I rang him. I left it a couple of days. I didn't want to pester him too much, but I was kind of like, I've got to ring him. I've got to ring him for because if someone else heard about, you know, they might have made him an offer just to buy the film and, and keep it in their own collection or something, or or take the credit for the discovery or something might have happened. So I got in touch with Bruce and I go, look, you know, I wanted to play it as cool as possible and basically said, look, you know, you realise the BBC will be very keen to to borrow this and make a copy because you know it's probably the only copy in existence. And Bruce go, yeah, 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 happy to do that, happy to do that, yeah, yeah, come round 
I'll come around and borrow it. So I made a time to go around after work one evening and, and I get to the door and Bruce is sitting, standing there and he's going, I've changed my mind. Um, I, you know, I don't know if you're in bars, so you walk out the door of my film and I'll never see you again and I can't trust you and you've got to come back with more proof. So I get back in the car and drive all the way home and go, oh, this is just... <laughs> You know what I mean? It's turning into turning into a bit of a drama. But I got in touch with Steve, and Steve emailed me through a letter that basically sort of explained what they wanted to, you know, they wanted to obviously borrow the film, clean it up, and then return it to Bruce, and he'd re- retain ownership on it. So, so once Bruce had that that uh, paperwork in his hands, he was happy to to let me take it away with me. So, because I remember walking slowly up, Bruce had a long driveway. And the car was parked on the road and, and his house was down the bottom of the hill. And I remember sort of walking up the driveway. Any moment, Bruce is going to call me back and go, no, I've changed my mind. <laughs> I going to well, walk a bit faster, walk a bit faster, get to the car, <laughs> holding this little bridge in my hands. I think if I trip over and smash it or something. You know I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and what is it like to have the only copy in existence of, of, of a film print like that? What is it like to have it in your possession? Were you Nerve-wracking. Yeah, it was in my house one night. And then I sent it off on FedEx the next day. But can you imagine if it had gone missing at any point during that process? Mm. God, I'd have had to answer to fandom around the world. You know, I would have just been like, oh. Didn't it take the BBC six months to reimburse you for the uh, FedEx? Oh, that was shocking. That really was. There were two things the BBC stuffed up really badly on there. And I don't blame Steve Roberts because he was fighting our corner the whole way. Mm. But they left myself and Neil off the sleeve notes about the discovery of the lion. Yeah. Because if it hadn't been for myself and Neil, Bruce was none the wiser it was a missing episode. Him, it was just another episode of Doctor Who. He didn't realise any were missing. You know, fair enough. He had he owned the episode, but he was the only one who got mentioned on the sleeve notes. And, and, and Steve thought that was out of line, and we thought that was out of line. They got it changed for the Australasian release, but in the original UK release, there's no mention of us. So that was the first thing that really pissed me off. And the second thing was that, as you can imagine, because we went for FedEx Express delivery to the UK because they really wanted it to be as secure as possible, cost a phenomenal amount of money for me to send that film to the UK. And the assurance was, oh, look, you know, um, as soon as the um, your invoice arrives and by email, we'll reimburse you. Just give us your bank account details. We'll put the money straight in. And so I paid for the FedEx on credit card and sent it off to the you know, the BBC, and they got the episode and they restored the episode and they put it out on VHS and it did very well on VHS and it was in the shops and it sold good quantities and I still hadn't been paid. And I was sending like an email every week. And of course, this is going to the BBC accounts department and they were just going, well, this is someone in New Zealand. What do we need to pay him for? So in the end, I was just, I was going online and posting about this to anyone who'd listen, mm. saying, look, you know, I, this is, this really sucks because people were going online, going, talking about, hey, this is really great that an episode was found in New Zealand we really ought to redouble our efforts worldwide to find episodes and I was starting to get really pissed off I was going why bother because you just don't get you know they don't they don't respect you enough to pay your costs I wasn't asking for any payment other than just to reimburse my costs of getting the episode sent to them so it's just the stuff I was out of pocket for. So, and it's simply because the BBC is a vast corporation, and, and and one department doesn't care what the other one does. So it was no no reflection on the people actually doing the work on restoring the episode or putting it out on a VHS. It was the it was everything had to be submitted through the accounts department, and they just couldn't care less. You know, everyone's got stories to tell about the BBC being really slack at paying people. And uh, you know, even years later, when I was working on the DVD subtitles, <laughs> the same thing cropped up again. But <laughs> it's um, probably the same person in the accounts. Well, possibly. What I was advised to do in the end was to send a copy of my um, visa statement with the amount that I'd paid FedEx and on the same statement to highlight the interest rate of my visa. <laughs> now, I'd, 
I'd obviously, you know, diligently paid it off at the end of the month, but they weren't to know that. As far as they were concerned, I'd, I was accumulating interest for every month I hadn't paid this FedEx bill. And so I basically made a claim for the interest on top of the um, on top of the original payment. So the moment the accounts department realized the longer they stalled, the more they were going to have to pay me. Surprise, surprise, I got paid the next day. Oh, fantastic. But this was, this was as you say, six months. This was right near the end of the year. Uh, and the and the episode had been released on the, on VHS months before, so yeah, it was pretty shocking. And uh, and looking back, you know, with the benefit of uh, all this time, what do you think about the reaction? You know, to, to to fandom's reaction to the finding, and you know, viewing the episode. What do you, what do you think about all that? Neil and I um, talk about the the David Bowie song Heroes, where it's got we can be heroes just for one day, and that's honestly what it felt like that one line, because for one day. We we were like Doctor Who celebrities. We were on we were on two national news channels in New Zealand. We were in all we were on the front page of the New Zealand newspapers. We were on international newspapers. We were on websites all over the world. Mm. And then a day or two later, you know, your yesterday's chip paper, yeah, your fish and chip paper. But just for that one brief moment in time, we we were like. Doctor Who celebrities, you know, not more just Doctor Who celebrities, because these were mainstream newspapers and, and, and mainstream media. There was there was a point where I was juggling calls from radio stations all over the world, and they basically, I, I'd you know, I'd have an interview on the on the telephone with with BBC Radio, and I'd I'd put down the phone, and it and it'd pick it up again, and it would be um, I don't know. I, I, ITV or CNN or someone else just wanting an interview, and it just it was just mental. It, it felt really weird, and I, I kind of got the perception just for a very short time what it would be like to be someone who was just hounded constantly all the time for for media interviews. But yeah, no, it was it was just just for that that very one day. That that, that was our, our our period of fame. You found one episode, and Phil Morris found nine. I can imagine what it was like for him. I suppose. I don't I don't envy him in the slightest because you know you just look at the what he's had to put up with online from people just just hounding him constantly so yeah it's it's you know it can fame can bite you in the ass as well and what about the sensor clips the new zealand sensor clips yeah that was um simply a case that um like like probably probably like australia because i know new australia had a whole series of sensor clips that that um the reel of stuff that had been physically clipped out of the film were kept and they found their way into private hands and were discovered um, in 2002, 2001, um, in, in New Zealand. Um, there were clips from Web of Fear, from the the Ark, and uh, Wheel in Space. And and they were released on um, as an extra, I think, on the Seeds of Death DVD, and then later on Lost in Time. And before, before Web of Fear was found, obviously... That was the only way in which you could see those later episodes was just those very brief clips. And and Doctor Who was quite heavily censored in New Zealand, and we missed out on seeing a lot of stories here um, because they were deemed unsuitable for, 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 for family viewing. Um, the Ice Warriors, Faces Ones, they, they, they were just basically said, no, you, these are not going to be screened because they're, they're just too... Fury from the Deep, that's another one. Even, ironically, um, The Crusade. So the episode of The Lion, although it was brought into New Zealand and assessed, was never ever screened here. And before we wrap it up, uh, Paul, we, because of your specific insight into, into The Lion, uh, what, do you, what do you make of the Omni Rumour? Any, any thoughts? 
uh, I'm, I'm a natural skeptic. I, I've always said that I believe it when the, when the DVD is gathering dust on my shelf. Uh, well, I can tell you that there is a layer of dust on my copies of um, Web of Fear and Enemy of the World now, so I'm prepared to believe they do exist. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, I'd love for more stories to be found, obviously, but I don't have any inside information. I don't know. Um, I hear through various rumblings that, that Phil Morris does have a number of other films, but they're not necessarily of Doctor Who. And I suspect this might be how the Omni rumor has come about, because people have heard the volume of material that he's recovered from Africa and just made this natural assumption that that's all Doctor Who, when in fact it's probably mostly American series or or um, obscure british stuff and and therefore not not as much archive value as 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 doctor who perhaps has and it may be that what we've got now is what we'll always have there may be no more to be found i'm perfectly you know that's perfectly possible too as depressing as it was but i think the, th- the core of the omni rumor is that everyone no one wants to give up hope no one wants to sort of say hey that's it there's no more enemy of the world and web affair with the last two discoveries and, and there's no more to be had no no one wants to sort of come out and say that definitively because it's kind of like it's kind of depressing to be stuck on what is it 97 episodes that we're still missing everyone would love to believe it's 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 that sort of great belief that yes there should be more there should be more you've got to remember before lion was discovered we went for many years without any discoveries and um when they issued that missing years tape with the ice warriors and there's ian levine on there going you know i think i believe there will always be this number of missing episodes and you know hand on heart saying I don't think there will be any more discovered and then it was only a couple of months after that that we came out with the lion and so we were able to prove him wrong so it'd be kind of nice to say <laughs> so I should do an Ian Levine now and say I believe there will always be 97 missing episodes prove me wrong so someone can come out and go ha ha you're wrong <laughs> <laughs> absolutely so what we'll do is we'll wrap it up um, Paul uh, if you want to plug your shop feel free to do so yeah my wife and I run a um, science fiction shop here in Auckland New Zealand called Retrospace and uh, we started out as an online store and that's still running now but we're also now a physical store as well so we've got a got a high street store in, in, in our local suburb of Takapuna on the north shore of Auckland uh, we're at 22 Hurstmere Road for those who live in Auckland but online you can find us at www.retrospace.co.nz and that's our that's our online store and we sell a lot of Doctor Who stuff but we do general sci-fi movies television all sorts just a really really great general store and uh you have a couple of sites i'd like to plug obviously we've talked a lot about the tsv archive and the new zealand doctor who fan club that can be found at um, www.doctorwho.org.nz which is the um the new zealand doctor who fan club website and all those tsv issues we talked about are all uh, archived on there and last but not least, I have my own website where I talk about my own writing, um, all my work on the DVDs, all my ongoing work on the, the books about the comic strips. I've even got stuff on there about my early forays into fanzine writing, just to take it back to the main subject of this podcast. And that's at www.paulscoons.com. And if people want to get a copy of the Comic Strip Companion, just go to your local e-tailer on the internet. Yeah, and I think I've got links to those on, on my website as well. And hopefully those e-tailers pay tax. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you, I think I think if you really want to if you really want to support um, the the publishers, then then buy direct through Telos. Absolutely, they they, they sell online through 
through um, um, telos.co.uk will have that and there's a link to that on my website too which where they sell the books online go go through them because you're, you're supporting my publisher basically that one and we'll put links to all your uh, things that you plugged in our show notes as well oh thank you so Paul thank you so much for being on this episode of 42 to Doomsday it's been a real delight to speak with you about the early days of TSV and, and Doctor Who fandom in New Zealand thank you so much for coming on it's, it's been a pleasure it's been a pleasure even though we are two Australians yes <laughs> I'll let you off this time. We won't mention a World Cup, will we? <laughs> no, not at all. I will say that I wanted New Zealand to win. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you did. No, I did. Seriously, I did. I did. Paul, thanks very much for that. Thanks, Paul. That was really good. Thank you. Bye. You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon.